Did you know? In the first draft of Mewtwo Strikes Back, Mew could talk. And it was actually kind of a jerk. In one of his Japanese blog posts we translated, the movie's head writer Takeshi Shudo said, There were lots of points where Mew told Mewtwo, After all, you're nothing but a copy. This triggered Mewtwo's inferiority complex and a burning hatred towards the original Pokémon. These lines were meant to needle at Mewtwo and defend its ego. It was like a drama where they debated Mewtwo's right to exist. Mew's personality is violent and unpredictable, and yet it looks innocent, cute somehow, and doesn't appear to be threatening. So in a way, it's both cruel and effective for Mew to incessantly chip away at Mewtwo's self-esteem. Shudo goes on to say they had a hard time making Mew's voice sound both innocent and defensive, so they just changed it so Mew just flies around looking cute saying its own name. But even though it can't talk in the final script, it's still just as much of a jerk. Shudo made that clear on his personal blog, saying, I don't think Mew's lines in the first draft were wasted. What Mew wanted to say was, a copy's just a copy. I can't tolerate the existence of copies made by humans. Both Mew and Mewtwo feel anger towards humans for creating a connection between them without their consent. I think that first draft was necessary to make sure the director and staff understood both Pokémon's motivations. So, if you've been thinking of Mew as sweet and innocent, you thought wrong. That's just its soft exterior hiding a, quote, cruel, violent, and unpredictable personality. In another blog entry we translated, Shudo says the first Pokémon movie was originally planned as a follow-up to an anime episode he planned to write himself that would have established Mewtwo's backstory and a confrontation against Ash. That's why the movie's called Mewtwo Strikes Back. It's a revenge story for what happened in the TV show. That said, they actually came up with the name of the film before anything else. Shudo said, According to the Japanese TV schedule, Mewtwo is supposed to have already appeared on TV by the time the film releases. He's supposed to have faced off with the anime protagonist once already. Maybe the protagonist even beat Mewtwo somehow. So let's make it a story about Mewtwo's revenge. One of the Star Wars movies was called The Empire Strikes Back, which Shudo thought sounded cool. So that's what they titled the first Pokémon movie. Pre-production was getting started, but soon after, a Porygon episode with flashing lights gave thousands of Japanese kids seizures in an incident now known as the Pokémon Shock. Due to health concerns, the Pokémon anime got pulled off Japanese TV for four months, and by the time it returned to the airwaves, the writer's initial plans were so far behind schedule that the episode with Mewtwo's backstory never got made. To be clear, Mewtwo did appear in a few episodes that aired a few months after the movie came out, but these were not the episodes Shudo originally intended. That one never even got written, and the reason Mewtwo was striking back was changed from getting revenge on Ash to getting revenge on Mewtwo's creators. When Shudo was still in the early stages of writing the movie, the higher-ups at the studio hired Masachika Ichimura to play the voice of Mewtwo. Ichimura was the actor who played the Phantom of the Opera in the Japanese theater production, and Shudo was starstruck and super excited to hear he'd signed on to the film. With that in mind, he wrote Mewtwo to basically be a Pokémon version of the Phantom, having a dark past that leads him to isolate himself from society. Controlling, secretive, intelligent, and seen by the outside world as scary and evil, even though in his heart of hearts he's really just tortured by his own existence, and overwhelming sense of solitude. Shudo even gave Mewtwo a castle to mirror the Phantom's opera house. As Ichimura was getting in character to voice Mewtwo, he turned to Shudo and asked, Mewtwo's character is the Phantom of the Opera, right? 
Shudo nodded and whispered, You're exactly like the Phantom of the Opera. Most fans outside Japan have never heard Ichimura's performance as Mewtwo, although it's really quite good and you should definitely check it out, but him being cast had a profound and lasting influence on the series, not just in the movie but how fans around the world perceive Mewtwo to this day. With nothing but his appearance in Gen 1 to base the character on, Shudo could have very easily written Mewtwo as a comic book supervillain or a monster who couldn't even talk. But thanks to the Phantom of the Opera and how it inspired Shudo, Mewtwo will always be known as dark, brooding, and isolated. Speaking of Mewtwo's castle, in Mewtwo Strikes Back, it's in a movie-exclusive location called New Island. But where exactly that is in the Pokémon world is never explained. However, some Japanese books published a couple years later featured a map of the Orange Islands, which revealed New Island is actually southwest of Cinnabar. In 2020, a scientist named Yun Shiao discovered three new species of beetle in Australia. He named them Binburum Articuno, Binburum Moltres, and Binburum Zapdos. We got in contact with Yoon to ask about them and he told us, I always feel it's nice to connect popular culture to biotaxonomy to raise awareness for conservation of the amazing diversity of our Earth's ecosystem. And I really appreciate the biodiversity of the Pokémon world, which is actually based on real-world diversity. When we identified three new species at one time, an idea of three legendary Pokémon who always appear in each generation came to mind. And as my first contact with Pokémon, the first generation's the one that left the deepest impression. That's why I chose these three birds. I won't say playing Pokémon is the only thing that inspired me to become a biotaxonomist, but it must have had an influence. Apparently these beetles were sitting in a museum since the 90s unidentified until Yoon discovered them. It's unknown where they were actually found in the wild, so it seems fitting that beetles named after legendary Pokémon are classified as Habitat Unknown. Their rarity was another reason Yoon named them after the bird trio. He told us they're quote, as rare as legendary Pokémon. In fact, they're so rare that video of live specimens don't even exist. All there is is this single photograph. We also want to point out that in red, blue, and green, all legendary birds had eight toes. Except Zapdos, who only had six. <laughs> but later on, it sprouted two more toes in a stealth update, making it equal with Articuno and Moltres. Speaking of early designs, the November 1996 issue of Korokoro Magazine was the first time Pokémon Blue was ever announced, and the magazine showed off some beta sprites that were planned to appear in blue, but ended up getting replaced at the last minute, including one for Mewtwo. We actually think it's a pretty big improvement over the Mewtwo sprite that did end up getting used, not only in Japanese blue, but the versions of red and blue that released internationally. This unused blue sprite for Mew was discovered in a 2019 leak of prototype assets, but a couple even more interesting sprites were discovered in leaks dating back to Gen 2's development, revealing a couple early designs for Celebi. The first is pretty clearly modeled after the Native American fertility god Cocopelli, who's known for being a bit of a trickster. With origins dating back over 1,000 years, Cocopelli presided over childbirth and agriculture, and also represented the spirit of music, and playing his flute was said to chase away winter and usher in spring. While a little less obvious, the later Celebi appears Cocopelli-inspired as well, and displays a strong Native American motif. Game Freak never commented on these leaked sprites, but fans have speculated the designs were scrapped possibly to avoid controversy. Cocopelli was primarily a god of the Hopi tribe, who still exist today but were mostly wiped out during colonization. And Game Freak might have realized that turning their god into a Pokémon wasn't the best idea. Or they may have simply decided to take Celebi in a different direction. 
Although they never talked about those beta sprites, Game Freak has talked a bit about Celebi's development. Junichi Masuda wrote on his blog that they decided it would have a nature theme. Not much else was officially explained until 2018, when an interview was posted on Game Freak's official YouTube channel. It's in Japanese, so we translated it into English. In the video, Hironobu Yoshida explains that he was a new Pokémon designer brought on for Gen 2, and his first task was creating Wobbuffet, Dunsparce, and Celebi. Presumably, Celebi's nature setting was part of the design specifications handed down to him. In the video, he says, So when I got to work, I realized Celebi was at the bottom of the Pokedex list. I asked why that was, and they told me it was going to be a legendary Pokemon. It's the same as Mew. So I aimed to design a small, cute, fairy-like Pokemon like Mew. That's how Celebi came to be. Yoshida, Morimoto, and Uno go on to say that similar to the Mew Under the Truck rumors in Gen 1, after Gold and Silver launched, a new rumor started to spread, that Celebi could be found at the shrine in Ilex Forest. Shigeki Morimoto was the guy who added Mew into Gen 1, and he's known as a bit of a rascal. So everyone at Game Freak accused him of hiding Celebi at the shrine, saying, You didn't add that in there, did you? What'd you do? What'd you do? But Morimoto was innocent. It turned out the rumor was completely made up and they had no idea how it started. But then they thought, huh, that's kind of interesting. So when they made Crystal a year later, they added an in-game event where you actually could catch Celebi at the Ilex Forest Shrine. So the mysterious fan rumor actually became a reality. It's at this point the interviewers realize the shrine literally had zero purpose in gold and silver, and ask, so why did it even exist? According to the developers, that's a question even they don't know the answer to, which just makes the Celebi rumor all the more mysterious. <laughs> Next up, we've got Ho-Oh. Did you ever wonder why it appeared in the first episode of the anime, years before Gold and Silver even launched in Japan? According to Takeshi Shudo, it was just marketing. Simple as that. In a couple blog posts, he wrote, When I started writing the script, I was informed that the second generation of Pokémon games was nearing completion. Some felt that Ho-Oh should be shown as a draw for the whole series, if only for a few seconds. So the scene was added in. Over a year ago, we made a 20-minute video entirely dedicated to Lugia, where we talked about how Shudo created Lugia and before it had a proper name, and was simply referred to as Pokémon X. After the video was already published, our friend Aleph sent us this early concept art made by Ken Sugimori, revealing it literally had an X on its belly early in development, which was shown off at the Pokémon the Movie XY exhibit in Tokyo in 2014. In our Lugia video, we also talked about some connections Lugia has with Ryujin, the Japanese god of the sea. One of y'all in the comments pointed out one more connection that we missed. In Pokémon X and Y, there's a small cave where you can find the legendary bird trio. In the English version, this cave is called the Sea Spirit's Den, but in Japanese it's called Watatsumi's Den. Watatsumi is Ryujin. It's the same god, just by another name. The legendary bird found inside strengthens the cave's connection to Lugia, and also strengthens Lugia's connection to the Japanese god of the sea. And as we noted in our previous video, in the Japanese version of the second movie, Lugia's literally called, quote, the god of the sea. Now let's talk about the relationship between Ho-Oh and Lugia. You've probably already heard about their connection with the real-life temples in Japan. We already talked about that in a video about six years ago, so for today's video, we're just going to focus on all the opposing forces Ho-Oh and Lugia represent. 
In a 2009 issue of Nintendo Dream Magazine we translated, all the top developers sat down for an eight-page interview promoting the release of Heart Gold and Soul Silver. The interviewer said, This one's a deep question about the world. So Groudon and Kyogre represent land and sea, Dialga and Palkia are time and space, and it seems like every legendary Pokémon has an exact opposite. Are Ho-Oh and Lugia opposites? They reply, there's no direct relationship between Ho-Oh and Lugia in the story, but as far as their motifs, they represent the sun and the moon, or day and night. That's how I picture them. Like light and shadow, the sky and the bottom of the sea, above and below. That's their meaning. So basically, they're opposites in the sense that they represent day and night and the sky and the sea. That's pretty interesting in itself, but it's what they said next that piqued our interest. Kenji Matsushima, who was game designer on Gold and Silver and the remakes, said, When Ho-Oh and Lugia first appeared on Game Boy, they had time-related abilities. That idea remains unchanged in Heart Gold and Soul Silver. So what's he mean by time-related abilities? After all, it's Celebi who's the time-traveling Pokémon, not Ho-Oh and Lugia. Ho-Oh can learn Sunny Day and Lugia can learn Rain Dance, but those are really more weather-related, so that's probably not what they're talking about. Looking through their Gen 2 learn sets, there are two other attacks that stand out, Future Sight and Ancient Power. It's worth noting that in Japanese, Ancient Power translates more closely to Primeval Power, meaning not just ancient, but even older, the earliest stages in the history of the world. Future Sight and Ancient Power were both added in Gen 2, as was the concept of time itself, with Gold and Silver introducing a real-time clock and day-night cycle. Even more interesting, Celebi also learns Future Sight and Ancient Power, and all three Pokémon with these time-related abilities are grouped at the end of the Pokédex together, Lugia representing night, Ho-Oh representing day, and Celebi representing time travel. So the argument could be made that together all three legendaries comprise a sort of time trio. Gen 3's Weather Trio, Gen 4's Creation Trio, and Gen 5's Tau Trio also have a pair that are more closely linked, and a third Pokémon that's a little more of its own thing. Time Trio isn't a term currently in use by the fandom, and it doesn't even have a Bulbapedia page. But it's worth noting that even though the Weather, Creation, and Tau Trio do have Bulbapedia pages, none of those terms are actually official. They were all created by fans to refer to groups of Pokémon, so in that regard, the concept of a Time Trio is just as official as all the rest of them. Which is to say, not at all, but a fun and potentially useful method of categorization. Speaking of fan-made terms, let's move on to the Legendary Beasts, which even though it's not an official term, you probably know exactly which Pokémon we're talking about. There's been a long-standing argument between fans about whether they're legendary dogs or legendary cats. Their early sprites from Gold and Silver's 1997 Space World demo leaked online in 2018, showing much more dog-like designs. But they underwent some drastic changes over the next two years of development, resulting in three Pokémon that are almost unrecognizable as the same species. In 2012, their designer Muneo Saito shed some light on the famous cat versus dog question. In a Twitter thread we translated, art director Ken Sugimori said, Let's try asking Muneo Saito. Do Raiko, Entei, and Suicune have any animals they're based on? Like people say they're based on dogs or something. Saito replied, At the time, I already had kind of a vision in my head for Entei. I was rolling that vision around in my head for a while trying to figure out how to connect Suicune and Raiko's designs, but it wasn't really coming together. I'm a manga artist, so I tried approaching things from the perspective of character creation. I thought of the story behind the Pokémon and worked backwards from there to figure out what features they needed. So a king with a majestic mustache and a rock-like body covered in thick hair and volcanic smoke rising from behind its head? Entei's design was taking shape. It basically looked like a lion, but I didn't want it to look too much like any one animal. 
so I settled on a silhouette that could look like either a dog or a cat or neither. After that, I settled on tiger-like and leopard-like designs for Raiko and Suicune. Suicune came together easily, but Raiko's design took a lot of twists and turns to get right. There was even a Blue Thunder version with a drum on its back. So basically, there are direct tiger and lion motifs, but the main idea is that they're designed to be spirits responsible for each element. Or rather, I aim to make them like distinguished gods. So there you go. They're based primarily on cats. Entei's a lion, Raiko's a tiger, and Suicune's a leopard. But Saito also said their silhouettes were made to look ambiguous, so there's still a little wiggle room for fans who don't want to believe they're cats. Although we should also note that 2022 is the year of the tiger in the Japanese zodiac, which is why Pokemon designers like Saya Saruta and Ken Sugimori tweeted out brand new Raiko artwork to celebrate New Year's. Because it's a tiger. Cats, guys. They're cats. We swear to God they're not dogs. In that thread, Muneo Saito also mentioned an earlier Raiko design, a Blue Thunder version with a drum on its back. Some YouTubers have claimed this Saito artwork is that early design, but that doesn't appear to be true. For one thing, there aren't any drums. Saito probably doesn't mean these kinds of drums, by the way. He's talking about the Japanese-style drums carried by Raijin, the Japanese god of thunder. And also, Saito responded to one of our tweets a few years ago, saying he actually made this artwork to promote a character design class he taught in 2014. This was the website that promoted his design class, and it also features Saito's artwork for a bipedal dragon, these jellyfish fruits, a popcorn family, and a psychedelic orchard. They're all interesting and possibly even inspired by unused concepts from his time working on Pokémon, but this doesn't appear to be the Blue Thunder Raiko he told Sugimori about. Blue Raiko's never been made public, not even in a leak, and doing so himself would put Saito in very, very hot water with Pokémon's legal team. So it seems fans will probably never get a chance to lay eyes on that long-lost legendary design. Moving on to Gen 3, you probably already know that Deoxys' design was inspired by DNA. In the Pokédex, it's even classified as the DNA Pokémon, but you might not have realized its four forms actually spell it out. The Defense Form, Neutral Form, Attack Form, and Speed Form together form an acronym for DNAs. In Gen 3, Deoxys can only be found on Birth Island, which is geographically isolated from other Sevi Islands. It's based on the real-life island of Minami Torishima, which is also geographically isolated, with the nearest Japanese island more than 700 miles away. A far-flung island with no inhabitants, it was claimed by the U.S. government in 1889 because it was covered in guano, basically just poop, but valuable at the time for its use in fertilizers. The Japanese and American governments argued over who owned the tiny poop-covered islands for decades, especially when its location became militarily strategic, so America bombed the crap out of it in World War II. The U.S. took control of Minami Torishima soon after, but eventually decided they didn't really care about it after all and gave it back to Japan. In 2015, the now-deserted island mysteriously vanished off satellite images, with the Japanese Coast Guard saying, quote, There is a possibility that the islet has been eroded by wind and snow and, as a result, disappeared. Conspiracy theories spread that a government cover-up was in the works, maybe centered around military technology, but the island quickly reappeared soon after, making headlines for an even bigger reason. Huge deposits of rare earth minerals were discovered in the island's mud, which could be enough to supply the world for centuries. There's a good chance that someday the screen on your smartphone will be made from minerals on Minami Torishima, not to mention key components in hybrid cars and missile systems. In other words, the real-life home of Deoxys is one of the most mysterious and important islands on the entire planet.
Ever wonder why Latias and Latios are psychic and dragon types? In our Lugia Origins video, we heard Shigeki Morimoto's explanation for why Lugia is half psychic instead of half water. Basically, because psychic Pokémon were super powerful back in the early generations, so it was made psychic flying not for design or lore reasons, but just to make it strong. In a 2018 interview, Morimoto explained that's essentially the same reason Latias and Latios aren't flying types, saying, when we were deciding the types for them, we wanted to give them Psychic type and Dragon type to really express their strength. But once we did that, we looked at them and knew they needed to fly, but couldn't give them the flying type too, so we ended up giving them the Levitate ability instead. Rayquaza's got a pink tongue in all its official artwork, but early sprites actually depicted with a blue tongue. The blue tongue can be seen clearly in all the Gen 3 games, Pinball, Ruby, and Sapphire, and even Gen 4's beta, but after Diamond and Pearl hit store shelves, Rayquaza's blue tongue was never seen again. Here's what that official artwork would look like if it kept that early coloration. Again on the topic of its color, a special shiny Rayquaza was released exclusively in Japan, Nobunaga's Rayquaza. Pokémon Conquest was a tactical RPG spin-off released in 2012, with the feudal warlord Nobunaga essentially acting as the game's villain as he seeks to conquer the Ransei region by force. In the last mission, he calls upon Black Rayquaza to serve as the game's final boss. To promote Pokémon Conquest's release in Japan, a Black Rayquaza with its original trainer identified as the warlord Nobunaga was distributed over Wi-Fi, but only to Japanese copies of Black and White. We don't have much to say about Gen 3's other legendaries that hasn't been said before, so let's go ahead and move on to the generation most focused on its legendaries. According to the game's director, Junichi Masuda, I decided that Ultimate was the theme in the beginning of Gen 4's development. The key element was to create the storyline around the Pokémon in Sinnoh mythology. The relationship between all these Pokémon is the key element. I wanted to express the importance of the balance between Substance, Dialga, the ruler of time, and Palkia, the ruler of space, and Spirit. Yuxi, Mesprit, Azelf. If the substance becomes too large, the balance of the spirit collapses. I wanted Dialga and Palkia to become counterparts for a sense of balance. Infinite time and infinite space, that to me is the ultimate. In another issue of Nintendo Dream Magazine, art director Ken Sugimori explains that Dialga and Palkia were created based on instructions from Masuda and they went out of their way to make dragons that unlike earlier designs like Dragonite, Salamence, and even Charizard, were a drastic departure from the conventional look of fantasy world dragons, which is why they don't look anything like the scaly lizards you'd see in Western or even Eastern mythology. To make Giratina's origin form and the distortion world, the developers borrowed a concept from Japanese culture. After directing Diamond and Pearl as the ultimate Pokémon games, Masuda felt they had to go even bigger for Platinum, so he instructed Platinum's director Takeshi Kawachimaru to use antimatter and Sakasa Fuji as inspiration to create the distortion world. Sakasa Fuji translates to reversed Mount Fuji, and it's the concept of a reversed Mount Fuji, the reflection in the lake underneath, a distorted reflection of reality. Trying to explain it, Masuda said, it exists, but it actually doesn't, it doesn't exist, but it does, that sort of thing. The mountain exists on the lake through human eyes, but it's only a reflection and doesn't exist. It's a diverse world. You see it only because you're looking at it with your own eyes. When designing Giratina's origin form, we paid meticulous attention to the character's details. Our designer redrew Giratina's image again and again to make it a Pokémon from the antimatter world. When Pokémon Legends Arceus released, fans were perplexed at the new origin forms for Dialga and Palkia. 
but they finally made sense when Japanese fans realized if you combine them with origin form Giratina, all three fit together to make Arceus. There's actually some lore about their origin forms that wasn't included in the game itself, but was published on the game's official website. For Palkia, it says, They say that the very space in the world where origin form Palkia resides is in shreds, as if it had been torn to ribbons. And for Dialga, the flow of time is said to be in constant flux in the world where origin form Dialga resides, always moving in different directions and different speeds. Dialga also got a unique form never included in the mainline series, Primal Dialga, who only appeared in Pokémon Mystery Dungeon Explorers of Time, Darkness, and Sky. In an alternate future timeline, the Time Gears are stolen from Dialga's home, the Temporal Tower, which strips Dialga of its powers of time control, along with its ability to express logic, reason, and even mercy. In other words, it's not as powerful as normal Dialga, but it makes up for it with mindless villainy, driven only by its primal instinct. Besides its unique lore attributes, it also differs in color. Primal Dialga was also the antagonist in the Blazing Exploration Team manga and made a brief appearance in the Beyond Time and Darkness anime special. But since he's only been seen in the PMD side series and not in over a decade, he's probably not considered canon to the mainline franchise. And since we're already on the topic of non-canon legendary forms, let's wrap up with a couple more from the series' history. First announced in a 2015 teaser trailer, Shadow Mewtwo was designed first and foremost by Bandai Namco, the developers of Pokémon Tournament, but Game Freak and the Pokémon Company contributed as well. After a plot device called the Shadow Synergy Stone merges with and corrupts Mewtwo, it becomes Shadow Mewtwo and flies around the Ferrum region draining Gaia to become even more powerful. Also, it can essentially mega-evolve into its Mega-X form, although the game doesn't call it that. According to Pokémon's producer Masaaki Hoshino, when we were originally coming up with the design, we worked very closely with the Pokémon Company and Game Freak to make sure everything was right. What happened was we at Bandai Namco had the idea of making a really cool dark-colored Mewtwo, so we had one of our designers take a crack at it and then presented that to the Pokémon Company and Game Freak. They all thought it looked really cool, so then we worked together to brush it up. Because everyone really liked Shadow Mewtwo, I have a personal hope Game Freak will continue to use it, but it's not really our decision, unfortunately. Sadly for those designers, Shadow Mewtwo never appeared in any other games after Pokémon Tournament, and when Polygon asked the Pokémon Company in 2016 if Shadow Mewtwo was canon or not, they were met with a very non-committal reply, no comment. An even lesser-known variant is Fragment Mew. It was created by famous Japanese designer and musician Hiroshi Fujiwara in a partnership with the Pokémon company they called the Thunderbolt Project. Fujiwara is famous for making streetwear fashion, so his Mew design was plastered on shirts, hoodies, hats, and turned into plushies. Even Mew's original creator Shigeki Morimoto was a fan, and appeared on Game Freak's official Japanese YouTube channel wearing a Fragment Mew t-shirt. That was actually the episode where Morimoto explained how he made Mew back in the 90s. Fragment Mew's official artwork was never released digitally, so we commissioned artist Rachel Briggs to trace the hoodie design for use in this video, and we'll post it on Twitter for folks who want to use it. Mew was kind of the project's mascot and got the most unique artwork, but a few other Pokémon appeared on Thunderbolt merchandise too, like Mewtwo, the Kanto Starters, and Pikachu. You could say Thunderbolt Pokémon are sort of their own special variants, kind of like Shadow Pokémon. But even though they're officially licensed Pokémon products, they probably can't be considered canon, although they're certainly an interesting footnote in Pokémon history. Unfortunately, they're also incredibly rare pieces of history. A lot of them were sold at limited-time pop-up shops in places like Japan and New York, so if you want to get your hands on one nowadays, you'll probably have to fight like a wild dog for it on eBay. 
Did you know Mew was inspired by an invisible F4 Phantom fighter jet and a dog that never existed? We know this sounds bizarre, but it's the truth. So buckle up for about 15 years worth of backstory. It's often said that Gen 1 programmer Shigeki Morimoto inserted Mew into Red and Green as a prank. But that's only a very small piece of the story, and it's not even entirely true. The idea for Mew actually came from Satoshi Tajiri, Game Freak's founder and the creator of the Pokemon franchise. Tajiri is incredibly reclusive and rarely grants interviews, but he did sit down for one gigantic interview at Game Freak headquarters in May 2000, which was later published as 34 pages in a Japan-exclusive book called Pokemon Story. In our search for Pokemon Secrets, we recently had those 34 pages translated into English, and what we found was Tajiri's rather bizarre but also completely ingenious explanation for why he came up with Mew. So let's get into it. As a teenager, Tajiri frequently skipped school to spend all day at the local arcade. He fell in love with games like Space Invaders and Xevious, two space shooters he obsessively played in massive marathon sessions. In the interview, he said, I would really try and take these games on, going at it for 12 hours at a time. At the time, I thought, I'm the only guy who's doing this. But in reality, guys like me were springing up all over Japan, and we started to wonder what made the game tick. When that information started to make the rounds as schoolyard rumors, there was a big mixture of truths and half-truths. Xevious was originally designed as a game about the Vietnam War, but adopted a sci-fi theme during development. An F-4 Phantom fighter jet remained in Xevious's internal data as a leftover from its Vietnam roots, but it could never actually be seen by the player. This led to urban legends that while playing Xevious, there was a one in a million chance you'd see an F-4 Phantom. A Space Invaders legend claimed you could fire a perfect shot down the middle to hit the invader in the back for 1500 points. Video game magazines heard these rumors and reported them as fact, which convinced Tajiri and his peers that the rumors were true. Tajiri explains further. There were tons of surreal rumors out there, like a dog running across the screen. Nobody could confirm most of these rumors. You'd hear, a friend of a friend down in Chiba says he totally saw the dog, and you'd think, did he really? There were always things he couldn't verify. I had tons of experiences like that. So when I was making Pokemon, I wondered what kind of legends might spring up. I heard this or that could appear if you do this or something. Let people's imaginations run wild. With those urban legends in mind, I came up with Mew, a character that exists but doesn't appear just like the F4 Phantom. Legends get talked about and live on. It's these kinds of urban legends that spread through word of mouth that you really feel in your bones. He goes on to say that what makes Mew special is that unlike the F4 Phantom, players can actually catch and keep it for themselves or trade it to a friend. So it lives on forever instead of appearing for a brief fleeting moment. So Mew was actually Tajiri's idea, not Morimoto's. But what about the design itself? To hear Morimoto's side of the story, we need to move over over to Game Freak's official YouTube channel. The channel was created in 2018, and top developers like Junichi Masuda practically beg their fans to subscribe to it. But as of 2021, they've still only managed to pull in 40,000 subscribers. But despite its low view counts, there are actually some hidden gems in there, including two interviews with Morimoto where he revealed some secrets about Mew's creation. They're all in Japanese without subtitles, so we translated both videos as well. According to Morimoto, 
photo, Game Freak wanted a Pokemon that could serve as Mewtwo's origin. Red and Green already had references to Mew scattered throughout Cinnabar's Pokemon Mansion, but Mew didn't have a sprite, stats, or anything tangible. In that sense, it was sort of like the original dragon from Gen 5. A creature you hear stories about, but only exists for the sake of the game's lore, and you never get to see it. After Pokemon's six-year development, Nintendo spent a fortune debugging the game. In another interview, Tajiri says it was the most expensive debugging process in Nintendo history. Game Freak was under strict orders not to tamper with the game after debugging was complete, but removing the debug features freed up a tiny amount of space on the cartridge, about 300 bytes. Game Freak already had to cut lots of Pokemon so red and green could fit on a Game Boy cartridge, but now they had just enough space left over to squeeze in one more Pokemon. Originally, it was supposed to be Ken Sugimori who would design Mew. After all, he was the guy who designed Mew 2 and the art director, so it was natural that he'd do the honors. Then, as the programmer, it was Morimoto's job to physically add Mew into the game. But as Morimoto explains it, I asked Sugimori if he could design it, but he never made the time to do it for me. There was no time left. Like, Mew had to get put into the game now or it wasn't gonna happen. I had no choice but to design it myself. I made its Pokedex entry and it stats and all that. Then I just put it in. He goes on to explain why Mew's design is so small and simple. 300 bytes just wasn't enough space for a large and detailed Pokemon sprite. So while Mewtwo and the legendary birds have sprites that are 56 pixels squared, Mew's sprite is only 40 pixels. Morimoto says there wasn't even enough space to color it in, which is why the Mew we know today is pretty much one solid color. Morimoto notes that even though the lore says Mewtwo was created as Mew's clone, in reality, the opposite is true. Mewtwo came first, and Mew was created essentially as a simplified clone of Mewtwo. Everyone at Game Freak was in on the plan, but no one told Nintendo. They eventually found out when fans started encountering a glitch that made Mew appear in their games. Nintendo was furious, but their anger subsided pretty quickly as urban legends about Mew lit up the imagination of fans, just as the dogs and phantoms had done for Xevious a decade earlier. Red and Green sold decently right out the gate, but sales exploded as rumors about a secret 151st Pokemon started spreading around Japanese playgrounds. According to Pokemon Company President Tsunakazu Ishihara, the monthly sales we had had up to then began to be equaled by weekly sales before increasing to become three, then four times larger. By the time it ranked number one in weekly sales, more than a year and a half had gone by since the game was first released. Pokemon might have never become such a huge hit if it wasn't for Mew, and probably never would have been localized into six languages and become the worldwide success it is today. One of the biggest urban legends was that Mew was hidden under a truck near the SS Anne, which you could only reach by engaging in a mild amount of tomfoolery. That was just a baseless rumor, of course. In reality, there was nothing anywhere near the truck, but the rumor eventually made it all the way to Game Freak HQ. So in honor of the urban legends that inspired Mew in the first place, Place, they hid an invisible lava cookie by the truck as an easter egg in Fire Red and Leaf Green. And in Let's Go Pikachu and Eevee, they left a revive that respawns once a day in the exact same location. The rumor was also referenced in Pokemon XD Gale of Darkness, where there's a beauty 
Mikey, who says, there's no Pokemon under a truck, maybe you'll just find a muck. Fans seem to have fixated on that particular spot because it's the only truck in Kanto, which led them to believe it must have some significance. But actually, it's nothing more than a leftover from earlier in development. In 2019, red and green prototype assets were leaked and then published by preservationist group Helix Chamber, including this proto map of Kanto, which includes a small city in the center that was cut from the game's final build. This proto map matches the 1990 concept art that labels the Lost City with the letter C. If we zoom in on the Lost City, we can see the exact same truck parked right out front. So after reworking Kanto, it appears Game Freak just never bothered to remove the old truck tile set from that rarely visited corner of the map. Or they might have even forgot it was there. The legend of the truck and all the other urban legends about Mew were just a bunch of schoolyard rumors. The truth was that Mew could only really be seen with a glitch. In those video interviews, Morimoto admits that he programmed the glitch into the games himself, although it was completely by accident. The mistake was mostly due to the fact he had virtually zero programming experience before working on Red and Green. But luckily, it turned out to be a blessing in disguise, as the Mew glitch was arguably the best thing that ever happened to Pokemon. Once the secret about Mew became public knowledge, Game Freak decided to host a Mew giveaway through Japanese magazine Koro Koro Comics. More than 70,000 fans mailed in letters hoping to acquire one of the only legitimate Mew in existence, but only 20 lucky winners were chosen. The number was kept so low because Morimoto had to personally create each Mew on his computer, then manually transfer them to the winner's cartridges with a standard Game Boy Link cable. He gave each Mew unique ID numbers ranging from 0001 to 0020, making them the rarest Pokemon to ever exist. To this day, he still says Mew's his favorite Pokemon. Morimoto even made Mew part of his signature. Here you can see what it looks like when he signs his autograph. So Tajiri came up with the idea of Mew and Morimoto made the design, stats, cry, and Pokedex entry. But the Mew he snuck into red and green was still far from finished. Like all Gen 1 Pokemon, Mew's sprite was designed first. Then art director Ken Sugimori came back later and made revisions with his watercolor artwork. Sugimori discusses this in depth in his 2014 art book, which we also translated into English. He says, each artist's sprites retain their individuality. The appeal of Pokemon comes from the wide range and diversity of designs. There's so many designs mixed together that couldn't have possibly all come from the same mind. But the only images for Pokemon we had were their sprites, so I had to draw them all anew based on the pixel art. I also modified design elements that I was displeased with. That's how they all became my characters in a way. And since then, I've been in charge of unifying the designs of all Pokemon. Apparently, the part Sugimori was displeased with was the fetus aesthetic, which he dialed down significantly. And through Sugimori's revisions and unification process, Morimoto's original design gradually evolved into a Mew that's barely recognizable as the same creature. In fact, we never even got to see Morimoto's Mew in the West, since that original sprite was only ever used in the Japanese red and green. But even after Tajiri, Morimoto, and Sugimori's contributions, Mew was still just a collection of images showing what it looked like from the front and from behind. 
Who created its three-dimensional appearance, its personality, and its trademark floaty movements? No one at Game Freak can take credit for those details. They were actually made two years later by OLM Inc, the animation team who worked on Mewtwo Strikes Back. On Game Freak's official channel, Morimoto looked back with amazement at how they brought his 40-pixel sprite to life, saying, You know, that was the first Pokemon movie ever made. So I went to go see it and I was like, whoa, Mew is moving. Mew has such a huge role in this movie. I made that Pokemon. It was very emotional. So much so that I watched it in America too. When you think about it, all I did was make the sprite. To see it move around was so cool. During this video's production, we got a chance to speak with OLM's Sayuri Ichishi, who confirmed for us that she was the one who drew Mew from every angle. She made these reference sheets for the first movie, along with Mew's iconic animations. Sayuri was also animation director on the very first anime episode, and a big part of her job is taking Sugimori's still images and faithfully bringing them to life. And he must be pretty satisfied with her work, because they've brought her back again and again. And as of this video, she's done animation for pretty much every Pokemon movie ever made. From the 80s arcade to the first movie's release in 1998, it took about 15 years for four creators, driven by the urban legends spread by millions of fans, to create the Mew we know today. In Pokemon lore, Mew gave birth to all life, but in reality, you could say it was all life who gave birth to Mew. This is Nob Ogasawara, descended from Japanese Emperor Seiwa. The Ogasawaras are a samurai clan who once ruled over the Shinano province, as well as parts of Kyushu, the real-life basis for the Hoenn region. Born into Japanese nobility, and as the eldest son of an eldest son, Nob would someday inherit his father's title as feudal lord. But after Japan's defeat in World War II, a series of reforms stripped the Ogasawaras of their land and gave it to commoners, making their nobility entirely symbolic with no actual relevance in post-war Japan. In 1968, Nob's family moved to Canada to start a new life. Nob would grow up to become a translator, and one day be hired by Nintendo of America to translate a new Game Boy game called Pocket Monsters Red and Blue. Over the next decade, he localized 26 Pokémon games into English almost single-handedly, and to memorialize his efforts, 14 Pokémon games have non-playable characters named after him. He translated all of the the game's small text, but the big text, like city and Pokemon names, were mostly handled by his boss, Hiro Nakamura, with some help from Nintendo Treehouse. But Nob did name some Pokemon, and also came up with some names in development that were never used. Nob officially left the franchise after Pokemon Platinum, but today we've asked him to make a return in an unofficial capacity, because there were some Pokemon who never got English names, Pokemon that Game Freak created and gave Japanese names to, but scrapped in development before they ever went through the localization process. So, in this video, we'll be discussing these lost Pokémon, their development history, lore, and entertaining a what-if scenario where they were never cut and Nob got the chance to name them. He just had one stipulation for us, that he'd only name lost Pokémon who had official Japanese names, because that's how the process worked back when he was Pokémon's official English localizer. That means some lost Pokémon who never had a name at all won't be covered. But before we get started, for clarity and legal purposes, 
because we need to stress one more time, these are unofficial English names. We'll also be using unofficial artwork by Rachel Briggs, some of which we commissioned specifically for this video, to recreate the beta sprites in the art style of their respective generations. And we'll include Game Freak's official beta sprites as well. And now that we have all that out of the way, let's begin. According to Pokemon's creators, Satoshi Tajiri and Ken Sugimori, the first 20 or 30 designs they came up with were all based on the kaiju they saw on TV as kids, most notably in Godzilla movies and the Ultraman TV show. With an index number of one, this Godzilla-inspired design might have been the very first Pokemon sprite they ever made. Game Freak named it Gyaun, the Japanese word for Godzilla's roar. So, Nob gave it the English name Gawarhead, retaining that original roar reference while also alluding to a warhead, the weapon humans frequently use to try and kill Godzilla. Along with Gawarhead, these next five lost Pokémon were all revealed in a biographical manga telling the life story of Satoshi Tajiri. Released in Japan in 2018, the manga included some real-life design documents from Red and Green's development, like the shark Pokémon with a harpoon on its snout that Nob calls Sharpoon. Most official Pokémon names, like Blastoise and Arcanine, are portmanteaus, the combination of two or more words mashed together. And many of Nob's names follow that precedent. This Pokémon's name was just Cactus, so Nob named it Cactormus, a portmanteau of Cactus and Torment. And this one in Japanese was simply named Deer, though it appears to be more of a moose, so Nob named it Ramoose, a portmanteau of Ram and Moose. This creepy crocodile he calls Gavilin, which is Gavile, a type of fish-eating crocodile, combined with the word Villain. Interestingly, the manga shows that designers sketched spikes onto its beta sprite, but a back sprite that leaked in 2019 shows us a slightly different Gavilin with spikes in place of hair. So, it appears the wacky hair version was made first, then Gavilin's hair was later replaced with spikes before ultimately getting scrapped altogether. This balloon Pokémon was likely cut in favor of Jigglypuff, whose Pokédex classification is the Balloon Pokémon. This lost Pokémon's Japanese name was Balanda. So, just like many Pokémon whose names aren't portmanteaus, Nob simply anglicized the original name to make its English name Balumba. Another kaiju Pokémon seems to be inspired by Mechagodzilla, an extraterrestrial mechanized villain that first appeared in 1974's Godzilla vs. Mechagodzilla. One of the few times fans got a peek inside the Forbidden Vault, its beta sprite was officially revealed by Pokémon Company CEO Tsunekazu Ishihara on a Japanese TV show in late 2018. Its Japanese name name was Omega, so Nob calls it Omegaj to incorporate the word gadget, a nod to Mechagodzilla's ability to launch finger missiles and various other weapons. First appearing on Game Freak's website in 1997, two of the earliest lost Pokémon ever made public were scrapped Weedle evolutions. The middle stage is a pupa, so Nob named it Pupal, combining the word pupa with pal, as in a friend, and the final stage appears to be some sort of beetle. According to its designer, Atsuko Nishida, it ended up being replaced with Drill because the original just wasn't cool enough. Nob calls this scrapped final form Carapthor, derived from Carapace, the exoskeleton covering a bug's thorax. We asked him where the suffix Thor in Carapthor came from, and Nob said, nowhere in particular. He just thought it sounded cool. Many official Pokemon names are portmanteaus and anglicizations, but lots of them, just like Carapthor, were chosen for no other reason than sounding cool. This flying fish Pokemon was found in leaked files from early in Gen 2 
2's development, and it was the only beta sprite in that particular leak that came with a name attached, Sato, which may have translated to Fishbird. Knob gave it the self-explanatory name, Sailwing. In 2018, Gold and Silver's 1997 demo leaked online, revealing dozens of lost Pokémon the fanbase had never seen before. Chikorita was the grass starter in the demo, but instead of Cyndaquil, the original fire starter was Hanuguma, which roughly translates to bear. Knob calls it Cuburn, another portmanteau, this time for cub, like a baby bear cub, and burn. Thanks to a series of leaked sprites, we can see that Cuburn was gradually revised into Teddy Ursa over the next two years of Gold and Silver's development. Cuburn evolves into Flambear, a combination of flame and bear, which together also sounds like flambe, a cooking method involving setting your food on fire. The family's final stage is Bruinous, a reference to Bruin, a folk word for bears, as well as Ruinous. Instead of a crocodile, the original water starter was based on a plesiosaur, a type of marine reptile that first came into existence about 200 million years ago and went extinct the same time that the dinosaurs did. Knob calls it Palsio, derived from plesiosaur as well as the word pal, because as a starter it would have been your little buddy. Its first evolution is Presio, and its final form is Don Marine, referencing a head honcho like a mafia Don as well as submarines. Some fans believe they were scrapped in development for looking too much like Lapras, who's also based on a plesiosaur, but since Game Freak never officially addressed this leak, we can only speculate. The 1997 demo also introduced baby and fully evolved forms of Tangela, which Knob dubbed Burgula and Jungula. Burgula uses Tangela's Jella suffix, and the prefix Berg derives from Burr, a type of seed, as well as the word burgeoning, which means to grow or flourish quickly. And Jungula is derived from jungle. Quillfish also had a scrapped evolution, Kazapalin. The Kazap part comes from the lightning bolt on its forehead, and the overall name references its visual similarity to Zeppelins. Interestingly, another Gen 2 leak contained what appears to be an even earlier beta sprite for Kazapalin, with a more simple blowfish design. This three-stage family consists of a sunfish, a shark, and a gulper eel, with each stage representing a real-life animal that lives progressively deeper in the ocean. The first stage, Molambino, takes its name from the sunfish Mola Mola, as well as Bambino the Italian word for a baby or child. The shark's Japanese name was Ikari, which translates to both anchor and rage. Its discovery in the demo led some fans to speculate that it was the original namesake for the Lake of Rage, which in Japanese is called Ikari no Mizu Umi. And if that's the case, the lake probably would have been full of Ikari, the anchor-tailed shark Pokemon. Nob calls it Angor, a mix between anchor, anger, and gore, like a gory shark attack. And its final evolution he calls Lareal a portmanteau of lure, surreal, and eel. In the 1997 demo, Girafferig also had a pre-evolution appearing to be a pair of conjoined twin ghosts. Knob calls them bipola, derived from the words bipolar and polar, since they're pulling in two different directions. A leak from later in development actually shows a more refined design for bipola, where they're still twin ghosts, but no longer attached. The leaked file was dated June 1999, just five months before Golden Silver released in Japan, so it seems Bipola almost made the cut, but ended up getting scrapped in the 11th hour. Bipola's design makes a little more sense when you realize that in the demo, Girafferig originally had two equally sized giraffe heads, which was pretty clever since both the English and Japanese names are spelled the same backwards and forwards, just like the design itself. The demo also contained a ditto evolution Knob calls Mimeo, named after mimographs, machines that duplicate text, as well as the word mimic. It also ends with 
the O sound to match Ditto's name style. Just like its pre-evolution, Mimeo could only learn one move, Transform, so its redundancy was probably why it didn't make Gen 2's final cut. It would have evolved from Ditto when it was traded holding a metal coat, so some fans have speculated that Mimeo influenced the design of Melton two decades later. These two Pokémon's true forms are kept intentionally mysterious, since they hide their real selves underneath the skin of a wolf. This may be why they ended up getting cut, as the existence of wolf pelts can raise some dark questions about the Pokémon world. Nob calls the first stage Warfurs, a combination of war and furs, and its evolution is Werelikin, a mashup of were and lycanthropy, which is a word to describe werewolf transformations. Both names are also a play on Bofors and Orlikon Flak Cannons, two brands of Flak Cannon common in World War II. Warfurs and Werelikin were originally brown in Gold and Silver's 1997 demo, but Game Freak changed their colors to blue later on in production, presumably to reflect their ice typing. This Pokémon appears to be the creature latched onto Slowbro's tail, although its data in the demo doesn't indicate it was actually related to the Slowbro family, which could mean it was entirely independent, or Game Freak simply hadn't gotten around to programming the data just yet. Its Japanese name was Taban, suggesting it's the turban that Slowking wears on its head. So, Nob gave it the English name Dis Disturban, a portmanteau of turban and disturb, as its very existence is somewhat disturbing, just like real turban snails. A family of dark-type felines had a bell theme and were only capable of being female, so Nob named the first stage Moibel, a combination of Mademoiselle and Belle, and its evolution he calls Belldaum, a mashup of Belle, Dame, and Bedlam. Their signature move was Heel Bell, which can also be learned by the Skitty family, a moon-themed cat family introduced in Gen 3, who, some fans suggest, are sort of spiritual successors to the Moibel family. If it hadn't been cut, this bomb-carrying seal would have been the series' first dual-type water and fire Pokémon. Nob calls it Grenmar, short for grenade, marine, and mar, an old-fashioned word that means to inflict serious bodily harm or to destroy. A fitting description for what a bomb does. This one, Nob called Belignan, derived from bell, belligerent, and malignant. It would have been a branch evolution for Weepin' Bell when it touches a poison stone. In the final game, Sprout Tower's only three stories tall, but the internal data reveals lots of unused floors that would have made it nine stories tall. This might explain why an NPC in the final game still says the tower's central pillar is a 100-foot-tall dead bell sprout. Some fans speculate that Belignan and the poison stone were originally meant to play a prominent role in this much larger version of Sprout Tower. In the game's final build, however, Belignan and the poison and stone got cut entirely, and the tower got shrunk down to just a third of its original size. There was actually an alternate Belignan design discovered in a leak from much later in development, so it seems it was one of the last Pokémon to get removed from the game. These electric tigers are what Nob calls Tiker and Strygar. Tiker is a portmanteau of Tiger and Tyke, a word for a small child. This was a name suggested to Nob by our artist Rachel Briggs years ago, and when we saw that he chose it for the video, we asked him not to use a fan name. Name, but he said if a name was good, he actually would have been fine using a fan name back in the 90s. Strygar is a combination of Strike, Tiger, and Taiga, the winter forest biome where you can find Siberian tigers. One leak revealed Tiger and Strygar were created during Red and Green's development, which means they actually got cut from two generations back to back. They even had an additional evolution in Gen 1, but only its back sprite was found in the leak, so we can only speculate about its frontal appearance. The leak 
also didn't include a name for the final stage, which means it won't be getting a name from Nob, since he's only giving English names to lost Pokémon with Japanese names. Two decades before Farfetch'd got an evolution in Generation 8, Game Freak almost gave us one in Gen 2. Nob calls it Luxwan, a combination of the words luxury and swan. It first appeared in Gold and Silver's 1997 demo and later got an updated sprite with a new color scheme. But ultimately, Luxwan didn't make the final cut. Perhaps the creepiest Pokémon in the demo were these two ghosts based on Asian culture. The first stage is based on a bear and Waraniño, which is a straw doll that originated in Chinese rituals. They're also used in Japan where they're nailed against trees to curse people, similar to how voodoo dolls work. It appears the attack curse was created as its signature attack, even though the straw doll Pokémon ended up getting cut, curse still made it into the final game. Nob calls this one Stroman, derived from Straw Man and Omen. Like how bad omens foreshadow tragic events. Its evolution is both a panda and a Zhongxi, also known as a Chinese hopping vampire. Though their depictions vary from story to story, Zhongxi often wear traditional Chinese clothes and hop around with their arms outstretched, searching for victims to kill and absorb their chi. You can kill a Zhongxi by writing a spell on thin yellow paper and sticking it to their foreheads, which explains the little piece of paper incorporated into its design. Nob calls it Fandarin, a mashup of Phantom, Panda, and Mandarin, as in Mandarin Chinese. Stroman and Fandarin were cut pretty early on in Gen 2's development, probably due to their occult origins and being a little too creepy for the Pokémon brand. Scyther got a new evolution in Gen 2 in the form of Scizor, and Pinsir was originally planned to receive one as well, which Nob calls Triculees, due to its three horns and the fact that it's based on a Hercules beetle. These colors were changed from brown to pink later on, before ultimately getting cut just a few months before Gold and Silver's release, possibly to make room for Heracross, who's also based on a Hercules beetle. The demo had a total of 17 baby Pokémon, but apparently Game Freak decided that was too many, so they ended up cutting it down to just seven in the final game. One of these lost babies was a three-tailed Vulpix pre-evolution, Nob names Volpe, with the three eyes referencing the Roman numeral for three. Nob actually would have preferred to theme the whole family in this style, telling us, I wish I could go back in time and convince them. It could have been Volpvi and make nine tails Volpix, with Roman numerals representing the number of tails. Volpvi was actually created and then cut during Gen 1, and later got cut again during Gen 2's development, just like these next three babies, who also all got cut from both Gens as well, starting with Coinpur, a Meowth pre-evolution who gets its name from Coinpurse and Purr. Coinpur's sprite has three different coins above its head, but they're not present in its back sprite. This has led some fans to believe that they weren't actually a part of its design, but were placed there by designers as options so they could later pick which coin shape would appear on its forehead. Baby Ponyta was Colta, derived from Col and Colt, the word for a young male horse. It also ends with Ta to match Ponyta. And Orfry was Baby Goldeen, whose name comes from Or, which means gold, because the Goldeen family are all goldfish, as well as Fry, the word for a fish that has just hatched. The rest of these scrapped babies were only cut from Gen 2, and as far as we can tell from all the leaks, were never intended for Gen 1. Baby 
Dodoo is Dodery, beginning with D-O-D to match its evolutions, followed by Airy, which means bird's nest, and in Old English refers to a family of birds. Even though its three heads make for an interesting bird's nest motif, the fact that its evolutionary line would have gone from three heads to two heads to three again may raise some uncomfortable questions about where that third head goes as Dodoo, which might have been why it got cut. Paraspore gets its name from its evolution, Paris, and also the word spore. Paris and parasects show a parasitic mushroom increasingly taking control over its host insect, but paradoxically, paraspore appears to be growing out of its mushroom. This runs counter to the evolutionary narrative of its evolutions, and similar to Dodery, the fact that it doesn't quite make sense might explain why it didn't make the cut. Baby Grimer is called Smudge, whose name and design are both pretty self-explanatory. Smudge was originally pink, but in a later build had its color changed to gray, possibly to make it look less like Ditto before the developers decided to remove Smudge from the game altogether. There's also a Growlithe pre-evolution, Pupperon, derived from the word pup, and also pepperoni, because it's a hot and spicy fire type. Another leak from earlier in Gen 2's production contained what appeared to be an even older design for Pupperon. Unfortunately, that particular leak didn't include names or evolution data, so it's impossible to be 100% certain that it is in fact an early Pupperon. And there's only one Lost Unova Pokémon discovered so far that has a name, a dual-type grass and ground Pokémon labeled Nekoyagi which is Japanese for root goat. It was shown for only a few seconds in a slideshow at Tokyo's Meiji University in 2010. With the help of Helix Chamber member Luminosis, we enhanced and translated that slide to get a better understanding of its concept, which may have eventually evolved into Gen 5's Sazbuck or Gen 6's Go-Goat, or possibly both. Nob calls it Tuba Capra, named after root vegetable tubers, and also Capra, the scientific word for goats. And just as importantly, it rhymes with Chupacabra, the mythical blood-sucking goat monster that was supposedly first spotted in Puerto Rico in 1995. The last Pokémon on our list is none other than Gorochu, the Raichu evolution cut from Gen 1. According to Game Freak's Koji Nishino, the developers had no choice but to remove several Pokémon from the game as they'd run out of cartridge space. As a result, some three-stage families got cut to just two stages, not only Gorochu, but also some of the babies like Volpi and Coinper. No concept art or front sprite were ever leaked or officially revealed by Game Freak. This artwork is based on its back sprite and a description by its creator, Atsuko Nushida, who told Japanese newspaper Yomiri that it had fangs and horns and looked like a god of thunder. Since Pikachu and Raichu kept their original Japanese names in virtually every language around the world, it seems fitting to leave this one unchanged as well, and refer to it simply as Gorochu. Did you know there's actually several Japan-exclusive Pokemon games on one of Nintendo's most beloved handhelds, the Game Boy Advance? Nintendo created several mini-games based on the Pokemon series for the GBA, but these weren't part of a standard retail release. They were distributed through the Pokemon trading card game. Special edition cards were released for the TCG that could be scanned into the Nintendo eCard reader. This was a device for the Game Boy Advance that could read encoded strips of data, similar to a magnetic strip reader on a credit card machine, which could scan a line of code from cards and then send that data to the GBA. Some of these cards would hold additional content for full retail titles, but in the case of Pokemon, 
some cards were released that held their own exclusive fully-fledged mini-games. We say fully-fledged, but they weren't exactly going to stun the audiences with their incredible gameplay, though we wouldn't call them a waste of time either. A fair amount of these cards were released internationally, but Japan had a collection of promotional cards which never had any publication outside of the region. These include Exciting Hide and Seek, this one's less of a game and more of a simple animated cartoon, likely based on the animated short Pikachu's Peekaboo, known in Japan as Pikachu's Exciting Hide and Seek. There are two different possible versions of this animated skit involving Pikachu and Lavatar hiding from one another. Next is Imakuni's Ball. Based on the Ball Game & Watch title, it involves juggling balls by using the left and right buttons, though in this instance the player's character is replaced by Tomoaki Imakuni, a Japanese musician who performed several songs for the Pokemon anime and promotional material for the TCG. He was even featured on several Pokemon cards, including the card required to play this game. There's also Wooper's Juggling Game. Taking on the role of Wooper, the objective here is to use the Wooper's water gun attack to keep Poliwag and Totodile off the ground. After a short while, Psyduck then gets dropped into the mix, with Poliwag falling faster than Totodile, and Psyduck taking two blasts before being projected higher. Then there's Big Fruit Strategy. Here, the player controls Totodile as the Mon swims in the water, with the goal of collecting as much fruit as possible while avoiding a number of Tentacruel. The player then obtains different point values depending on which fruit is collected, and the game finishes once the player crosses the finish line of the course. And last but not least, there's Toko Toko Truck. This game has two Pichus riding a handcar while passing different train stations. Their final destination is the Pokemon Center in Tokyo, but they have to get there before the time runs out by jumping over boulders left on the track along the way. There are plenty more Pokemon games exclusive to Japan which we'll be covering in this video. As usual, we'll be extensive, but we won't be counting demos or games that later got a comprehensive release in other regions, such as Pokemonster Stadium or Great Detective Pikachu Birth of a New Duo, or even Pokemon Green, as the original Green and Red were basically just less polished versions of what we got in the West. We also won't be counting apps that have no game-like elements, like Pokemon PC Master, which essentially just taught kids how to use a PC. We'll also have one pretty unique game we want to talk about at the end of the video, so stay tuned for that. Now, we try not to be biased on this channel, but the next game we're talking about is definitely our favourite game in this video. The Pokemon trading card game on the Game Boy was a huge change to the original games. Developed by Hudson, these games translated the mechanics of the Pokemon trading card game into a video game format. The game received an international release to wide acclaim, so it was surprising to learn that the game's sequel remains exclusive to Japan even to this day. Also by Hudson, Pokemon Card GB2 Here Comes Team GR boasted several new features and improvements over its predecessor. An optional choice of the player's gender was added, a training mode was included to teach people how to actually play the game well, and a deck diagnosis system was introduced to rate the player's crafted deck. Compared to the first game, which had 228 cards, GB2 was bumped up to a total of 445 cards. Probably the most iconic card added to GB2 was Great Rocket's Mewtwo, which was featured prominently in the game, and a real-life version of the card was distributed in Japan, bundled with special edition Celebi-themed Game Boy Advances, which means GR Mewtwo was Japan-exclusive both physically and digitally. Here's a translation of the card text. As you can see, its abilities essentially make it the captain of all dark Pokemon. 
It wasn't just the card count that was increased, but the size of the entire game was increased massively. Rather than a simple collect all the badges plot, a rival team was introduced known as Team Great Rocket, led by King Bidonichi. This group kidnaps the clubmasters from around the island featured in the original release, and steals everyone's cards. So the player assumes the role of a hero that sets off to rescue the masters and restore the status quo. Similarly to how Pokemon Gold and Silver introduced the second island, TCGGB2 is also made up of two different islands. The island featured in the first game, and a second island called GR Island. This was partly to address a common complaint with the first game, it's rather short playtime. The game's graphics were also noticeably improved, with areas having much more deep theming, characters having more animations, and a new selection of coins for the player to use during the match's initial coin toss. Another introduction to the card game sequel was a game center, where the player is able to play a variety of mini-games similar to that of the main series. This may be our bias speaking as fans of the Pokemon TCG game on the Game Boy, but this title is actually very enjoyable as a sequel, holding up even today. But this begs the question as to why it never saw an English release, and sadly, this isn't a hard question to answer. Pokemon Card GB2 released at the late date of March 28, 2001. This was just a week after the release of the Game Boy Advance, and with the original Pokemon TCG Game Boy release taking years to be localized outside of Japan, if this title was localized into English, it probably would have been released in 2002 or perhaps even 2003, meaning this sequel would have been in direct competition with Pokemon Ruby and Sapphire. And with GB2 essentially being twice the size of the original original game, it would have been more prudent for Nintendo to put those localization resources towards a GBA game instead. Lucky for the Pokemon franchise, the collectible creatures managed to become such a strong brand that they didn't have to be constrained to one genre, or even popular genres. The world of sports saw its own Pokemon game with extremely limited availability. Pokepuck Fishing Rally DS was available for just a few months in 2005, and could only be obtained through the DS Download Play kiosk. These kiosks could originally be found in Pokepuck, a theme park dedicated to the franchise, though they would later be placed in Japanese Pokemon Center stores and at Pokemon Festa, an annual Pokemon convention. The title's gameplay takes place on a river flowing into the sea, with the area changing over time. The top screen would display the shadows of different Pokemon underwater, and the player must cast their line onto the screen, pressing the A button when the floater is pulled under, and then repeatedly tapping to pull the catch. Each Pokemon caught is displayed on the touch screen, with their different scores being shown on the top screen based on the size of the Pokemon, level and rarity. Scores would be tallied at the end of play, with the top 50 scores being sent back to the kiosk and placed upon a score list shown on screen. Not only is the game limited in its release, only being available via a region-specific kiosk, but there was also no means of actually storing the game, meaning that should the player's DS be shut down, it could no longer be played. While one could, in theory, keep their DS powered up and the game left running at all times, it would still be unavailable long term, as the game was also restricted to a 12-hour time limit. Partly due to its limited distribution and semi-permanent state, the title has now become Lost Media, with the only known ROM being held by a private collector who refuses to make the ROM public despite constant requests from the community. Although he did, at the very least, record himself playing the game to give us a better look at how it functioned. But some of Japan's Pokemon exclusives were on popular hardware, 
very popular hardware. The region received three versions of Pokemon Mystery Dungeon created exclusively for the Nintendo Wii, made available as WiiWare downloads on the Nintendo Shop channel in late 2009 for 1200 Wii points, or about $12 each. These titles were Pokemon Mystery Dungeon Keep Going Blazing Adventure Squad, Let's Go Stormy Adventure Squad, and Go For It Light Adventure Squad. Developed by Chunsoft, these entries mark the only time that Mystery Dungeon has appeared on a home console. They're also the only entries in the subseries not to receive an international release. Often referred to as the Adventure Squad series, and contrary to other Mystery Dungeon games, these three titles put little emphasis on storyline. The game's plot starts with a group of Pokemon being sent by Slowking to rescue a lost Shuckle. After returning to town, he explains that he was searching for some delicious food, a story that will continue to unfold as progress is made. This then opens up the game's bulletin board, where Pokemon post requests for the player to undertake in exchange for a reward. Depending on which of the three iterations of the game is being played, the hub world will differ. For Blazing Squad, the location is a Pokemon village near a volcano. In Stormy Squad, the player is based at Pokemon Beach, and for Light Squad, the hub is a Pokemon Garden, which is held within a forest. The games made use of the same 3D graphics featured in My Pokemon Ranch, another WiiWare release which simplified the graphical style of each Pokemon. And according to IGN, the game's developers were aiming for something which resembles a picture book. Additional missions can be added to the game through the Wii's Wii Connect 24 feature, which will download while the Wii is in sleep mode. For a short period after the game released, several promotional codes were distributed as well, which could be entered through the game's Wonder Mail menu. These codes could be used to unlock unique Pokemon who the player could then use throughout the dungeons. These titles never saw a release outside of Japan, but this doesn't mean that they were never intended to be translated. Copyright filings were made in the US for each game's title, not just with their direct translations, but also a second set of filings for reimagined subtitles, which put the elements at the end of their names. The names were Forward Adventurers of Flame, Let's Go Adventurers of Storm, and Aspire Adventurers of Light. During development, IGN reported on the games multiple times assuming that they'd receive international localization, but this never came to fruition. To many, the lack of a stateside release was surprising, seeing as the Pokemon franchise has always had a strong following in the West. The Wii had a massive install base in 2009 and 2010, so why the game never surfaced in the West remains a bit of a mystery. In a positive turn of events though, a team of people at Project Pokemon released translation patches for all three games, making them playable in English over a decade after their original release. These translation patches not only aim to localize the game in a similar manner to that of previous official English releases, but also brought back almost all of the online features, including downloadable event missions and legendaries. Moving on from Pokemon games on popular hardware to Pokemon games on a console which some people have never heard of. The Sega Pico saw an exceptionally limited release worldwide, but was particularly popular with Japanese schoolchildren. Despite their association with Nintendo, the owners of the Pokemon brand, the Pokemon Company, aren't exclusively controlled by Nintendo. They have the option to create products branching across multiple video game platforms, which allows the series to reach a wider audience than just those interested in Nintendo hardware. Before we explain the Pico's Pokemon games, we should first give a brief introduction of what on earth the Sega Pico even is and where it came from. 
The Pico was released in Japan in 1993 and saw an international release a year later in 1994. The system held some mild success for a number of years, though it was ultimately discontinued outside of Japan in 1998. In Japan, however, the system would see continued support until as late as 2005. As of April 2005, 3.4 million Pico consoles had been sold at retail, with over 11 million software sales across 300 different pieces of software. The Pico hardware was derived from that of the Sega Mega Drive or Genesis, though differed dramatically in control and function. The Pico is shaped somewhat like a laptop, but without a screen or full keyboard, instead having a pad controlled by a quote, magic pen, as well as some colored directional buttons. Cartridges for the console aren't actually cartridges in the traditional sense either, referred to as storyware. Each game comes in the form of a picture book with a slot on the bottom which connects to the top half of the system, with the game progressing as each page of the book is turned. While the system saw a limited international release, none of the Pokemon titles made for the system were ever localized in the West. One of these region-locked titles was Pokemon Catch the Numbers, which released July 23, 2002, and featured the second generation of Pokemon. It was designed to teach children numeracy skills, with the story following Pikachu and Togepi after Team Rocket steals all of Ash, Misty, and Brock's other Pokemon. The player is faced with a selection of minigames that must be completed in order to retrieve the lost companions. As a side note, within the data of Catch the Numbers, a sprite of a wheezing can be found, which would ultimately never be used in-game. Another title is Pokemon Advanced Generation I've Begun Hiragana and Katakana, which released November 17th, 2003 and used the third generation of Pokemon. It was designed to teach Japanese children how to read and write Hiragana and Katakana script. The story again involves Team Rocket, with them deceiving Ash, Brock, May, and Max by disguising themselves and telling them that they need 25 Pokemon to progress to the Pokemon stage. Each Pokemon is caught by correctly drawing 5 Kana. If Pokemon on the Sega console wasn't enough, the Pikachu Pico was a Pikachu-branded Pico released in 2004, a year before the end of the Pico's life cycle. This system had no technical differences to a standard Pico console, and of course was made solely as a way of boosting the system's sales. The console came bundled with a copy of Pokemon Advanced Generation, I've Begun Hiragana and Katakana. And the last game published on the standard Pico was Pokemon Advanced Generation, Pico for Everyone, Pokemon Loud Battle, released on July 13th, 2004. The game again includes the third generation of Pokemon. The game stars Ash, Brock, May, and Team Rocket, and the game is mainly based around reading and playing minigames. The title came with a Pikachu-themed controller featuring various minigames that were playable in a competitive two-player mode, with both players using either side of the controller. Inevitably, the Sega Pico would come to the end of its life cycle in 2005, but the Pico brand wouldn't be entirely scrapped. Instead, a new and improved follow-up to the console was created for the Japanese market. This successor, the Advanced Pico Bina, was released in 2005 and is often referred to as simply the Bina. The two systems were very similar in design, though the Bina features an additional set of buttons on its right side to accommodate left-handed children, as well as built-in speakers and new ports for add-ons, such as an SD card reader, which can be used to save game progress and store images. And of course, 
the Bina got more Pokemon titles. Pokemon Advanced Generation, Pokemon Number Battle, released on October 1st in 2005, the game uses the third generation of Pokemon. The game mostly involves finding hidden Pokemon in various scenes, as well as solving math questions and puzzles. After this, Intellectual Training Drill Pokemon Diamond and Pearl Letter and Number Intelligence game was released on the 21st of April 2007 and featured the fourth generation of Pokemon. The game was geared towards teaching children general knowledge, words and numbers, asking them to do tasks such as counting Pokemon and grouping them together based on on-screen prompts. Pokemon Diamond and Pearl Search for Pokemon Adventure in the Maze was released on September 17th, 2009, again using the fourth generation Pokemon. This title seems to focus more on the Pokemon brand itself, with the player having to use the book to highlight Pokemon either based on their silhouettes or finding them in on-screen mazes. The game also encourages children to learn the Pokemon by name alone, rather than relying entirely on images. And lastly, Pokemon Best Wishes Intelligence Training Pokemon Big Sports Meet was released on December 4th, 2010 and included Generation 5 Pokemon. The player takes on the role of Ash through various games which involve learning Hiragana, numbers and English, as well as completing a number of exercises in order to win medals. Through the use of the Bina SD card reader, sold separately, it is possible to save and print images created in-game. Our next game that never left the land of the rising sun was also educational, well sort of. After the success of the first generation titles, Pokemon had solidified itself as a huge player in gaming. Nintendo naturally wanted to capitalize on the series' fame and ejected Pokemon into its new series of Picross titles, the Picross NP series. The series was exclusively available via download using the Nintendo Power Service in 1999 in Japan. The service allowed players to store a game on a blank Super Famicom cartridge using the in-store kiosk and take it home with them. Picross NP Volume 1, the first in the series, kicked things off by putting Pokemon front and center. In total, the game features 12 different Pokemon-based puzzles, one each for Meowth, Mr. Mime, Psyduck, the Clefairy Doll, Togepi, Electrode, Gloom, Pikachu, Zapdos, Rapidash, Poliwag, and Snorlax. Since the Picross NP series was made exclusively for the Nintendo Power Service and the service never left Japan, it's safe to bet that this is why the series never came to the West. You could argue that Nintendo could have just slapped all eight Picross MP titles on a cartridge in English for a quick buck, but 1995's Mario Picross was a flop in both US and Europe. This would make an English localization of Picross NP a risky move, one that probably wasn't worth it. Remember that awesome trading card game we talked about earlier? Well, there were a couple more trading card games that stayed with Japanese audiences exclusively, though they lacked a fully-fledged adventure mode like Pokemon Card GB2. One of these TCG titles was a Japanese-exclusive browser game called Pokemon Card Game Online, which released in 2009. Be sure not to mistake this game for a similarly titled Pokemon Trading Card Game Online, which is entirely different. Built in Flash, this massively multiplayer online card game is simply a means of playing the physical card game with others across the internet. Utilizing unique access codes included with Leafeon vs Metagross Expert Deck CD-ROMs. For users with a Pokemon Daisuke Club account, signing up for the service also deposited 2,000 action points, the in-game currency, into their account for use via the club's action point system. This game would allow players to use fixed decks against players made up of cards included in their pack purchase. 
the service only ran for about a year before being discontinued, a few years later, the West would get the aforementioned Pokemon trading card game online, making a localization of this original title redundant. Yet another card game entry was Pokemon Card Game How to Play DS in 2011, which served unsurprisingly as a means of teaching the player the rules of the card game, but on Nintendo DS. The game includes a digital rulebook covering how to play, along with a variety of tutorials. Once completed, five CPU-controlled opponents will become available to practice with. The game boasted a pretty neat feature, however, making use of the DS download play function allowing two players to compete against one another with only one cartridge. The title even came packaged with 90 real Pokemon cards so that you could take that sweet TCG knowledge you just learned out into the real world with you. Though Pokemon is at home on handhelds, many in the West didn't realize that the Pokemon franchise actually had moved to the mobile market earlier than the launch of smartphones. Not only that, but the first mobile application for the series wasn't even created by Nintendo, but rather Square Enix. Released in 2006, Pokemate was a phone application that let players send and receive messages with friends or participate in live chat, but also catch and store Pokemon. When starting the game, the player is given a random Pokemon along with 10 Pokeballs to capture more. Rather than utilizing mechanics of fighting or leveling, instead, the game serves as a virtual pet simulator, with the player caring for their caught Pokemon, just like a Tamagotchi. Players were encouraged to sign up for the game subscription service, which would grant them additional Pokeballs, extra media features, and the ability to catch more than just three Pokemon. While only released in Japan, the game was demonstrated in the US during E3 2006, with many assuming the worldwide launch would be coming at some point. As the result of low interaction from users, the service was discontinued in 2008, around the time it would have been unlikely to see an international release. The game can no longer be accessed, and all that remains are a limited number of videos and screenshots, making this another piece of Pokemon lost media. Pokemon's return to the mobile market came with the launch of smartphones. In 2011, Pokemon Say Tap became the second Pokemon mobile game after Pokemate, and is even more limited in scope. Developed by Creatures Inc., the application is a rhythm game based on the trading card game, with the goal revolving around tapping cards displayed on screen in time to the music and icons as they pass a circle. More points are awarded according to accuracy for the player's timing. This simple feat becomes less impressive after finding out there is only a single song available to play, and it's the ending theme to the Japanese anime at the time of its release. Can you name all the Pokemon BW? <laughs> In a similar vein, just a few years later in 2015, Dancing Pokemon Band took the concept a step further. The player takes control of a Pokemon summoned by Hooper and must tap three different icons, donning different Pokemon faces as musical notes pass over them, with more points being awarded for better timing. Each correctly timed tap fills a meter at the top of the screen, which, when maxed out, causes two additional Pokemon to jump on screen for a 10-second dancing round, where buttons can be tapped freely before the song finishes. After the game ends, the player is given a rank and a Petcha Berry worth different amounts depending on score. These can then be spent to unlock additional Pokemon to play across the game's selection of four songs and three stages. There are also three additional Pokemon that could be unlocked by entering special passwords revealed across Pokemon shows on TV. Pokemon Say Tap and Pokemon Dancing Pokemon Band were only made available for a few months in 2011 and 2015 respectively, and as such were never brought to the West. 
One could assume that around the mid-2010s, limited releases of internationally renowned series would become an outdated practice, but that simply wasn't the case for Pokemon. The series continued to see more games that never got localization, despite the clear appetite for their availability among fans. A free downloadable Pokemon game limited to Japan was released for the 3DS in 2014, developed by Marvelous, called The Thieves and the Thousand Pokemon. The game's plot revolves around recovering stolen diamonds, supplementing the plot of the 17th Pokemon movie, Diancy and the Cocoon of Destruction. Essentially, a group of thieves has been using their Pokemon to steal valuable diamonds from the Diamond Domain, where they are used as a form of energy. The player takes control of a squad of Chespin, Fennekin and Froakie, with one designated as their leader, to recover the stolen artifacts and return them to their rightful place. Players are initially given 50 of whichever starter Pokemon they choose, which can then be taken into a stage as a spendable resource, with additional Pokemon being obtained through Street Pass, or by spending the Nintendo 3DS's Play Coins. The Pokemon obtained via Street Pass will be whichever starter Pokemon the passing player chose as their leader, while the Play Coins are redeemed to obtain more of the player's initial choice. Before selecting a stage, the player must designate how many Pokemon they intend to take with them, with any remaining Pokemon after a stage's completion being lost. Stages are made up of different challenge types, with three different types in total, battle, sneaking, and obstacle clearing. Battle stages involve the player defeating Pokemon in order to advance to a stage, with a battle gauge on top of the screen indicating how the fight is going. If the bar reaches the left, the player loses, while if the bar reaches the right, they win. This is manipulated by sending additional Pokemon into the fight, while the enemy may also send in additional reinforcements, with type effectiveness having influence over a squad's power. After each fight, the player may lose a number of their Pokemon. Sneaking challenges have the player attempt to use stealth to bypass a fight. By holding down the X, Y, or A button, Chespin, Fennekin, and Froakie will attempt to sneak past the opponent, only successfully getting past if they cross a threshold. If the button is released before they make it, they will retreat back to their starting position. The guarding Pokemon may stir and check behind them. If they see any of the player's squad making an approach, the stage will change into a battle scenario. If they don't spot anything, they will move closer to the player's starting position until eventually they spot the player's team and commence in a battle. Obstacle clearing stages face the player against objects which must be cleared by sending Pokemon in. A gauge on top of the screen will indicate progress, though unlike a battle, there is never any pushback. No Pokemon are lost during these challenges either, so it's more a sort of gate that can only be passed by having enough Pokemon to meet the threshold. If at any point during a stage the player chooses to stop their progress, the group of Pokemon that had been sent in will remain at the point at which the player quit, being able to rejoin the squad once they reach that point of the stage again. As a result of the Pokemon being expelled after a stage, a player's Pokemon count will become limited before long, leading to them needing to seek out other players to obtain more via Street Pass, or bolstering their initial leader Pokemon via Play Coins. This results in the game being almost impossible to complete in a single sitting, forcing it to be played over multiple days at least in order to progress. Initially, only stages 1 through 16 are available to the player, covering the story of Marilyn and Riot, who appeared in the 17th movie. Additional stages surrounding Argus and Millis are unlocked after stage 6, while four additional stages could be downloaded by players that attended a screening of Dancy and the Cocoon of Destruction in theatres or other special events. By completing these lock stages, a code is awarded to the player to unlock an additional Master Ball that can be used in Pokemon X and Y. 
The Thieves and the Thousand Pokemon is the most recent regional exclusive Pokemon title in this video, but there's one game we didn't mention yet, and it comes with a request for help and a $550 bounty. A demo for a PC edition of Pokemon Mystery Dungeon, subtitled Gold Rescue Team, was released in the midst of 2007. It was available exclusively in Korean, with the demo being distributed as a free download to anyone who made an account on the Korean Mystery Dungeon website. The demo's size invokes an interesting possibility, being 450 megabytes. The demo took up far more space than what is needed for the limited segment that is playable, leading many in the community to believe that this data may actually contain the full game. Information on this game is immensely scarce, with the only real discussions around it being held on Korean message boards, with essentially no preservation of the original files. Did you know? Blaziken was the first Hoenn Pokémon. Not only that, but it was intentionally created to make players stick it in a PC box. According to Gen 3 art director Ken Sugimori, I thought about how wide the variety of Pokémon could be, and wanted to push the envelope of what would be accepted. So the first one I made was Blaziken. I wondered if people would go for such a humanoid Pokémon. I was intentionally testing the waters. Over the years, we've developed an image of what a Pokémon looks like, but this time we decided to push those boundaries and weaken the idea of what can't be a Pokémon. Ruby and Sapphire was about taking on new inspirations for Pokémon unlike anything we used before. Blaziken was in fact one half of this Pokémon, which was designed early in development and appears to have been split in two, with the other half becoming Latias. Just like Charizard in Gen 1, Blaziken was created first, then its pre-evolutions were designed by working backwards. Ken Sugimori went on to say that Torchic is based on painted chicks. Back when he was a kid, it was pretty common to see them for sale at fairs and festivals. Parents bought them in the same way they might buy a goldfish, sort of like a toy they don't actually have plans to care for long term. When a painted chick grew up and wasn't cute anymore, a lot of kids would just throw them out like a broken toy. Sugimori said, I think people from our generation have certainly experienced buying painted chicks. So this one's orange, and just like a real painted chick, it starts out cute, then grows into something fierce and hard to look at. We wanted to recreate that experience, which led to Torchic, Combusken, and Blaziken. We wanted people raising them to feel that sense of disappointment, while also acquiring something more powerful. So if you're the kind of kid who didn't like what your starter grew into and shoved it in a PC box, you're like the Japanese kids of Sugimori's generation who threw out their painted chicks. But if you kept Blaziken in your party, you're probably a pretty good pet owner. This tale of Hoenn's fire starter comes from a 2003 issue of Nintendo Dream Magazine, which featured a nine-page interview we recently translated into English. Inside these exclusive translations, we found lots more info not previously known to Western fans, like that Ruby and Sapphire weren't originally planned to include any Pokémon from past generations. Game Freak eventually used this strategy to make Gen 5 feel like a soft reboot, but the idea initially started with Gen 3. Sugimori said, The goal was to make something that felt new. A lot of people said that not much had really changed in Gen 2, and we kept wondering why that was, and I think it's because there were too many familiar Pokémon appearing in Gold and Silver. The first Pokémon you encountered was a Pidgey, and while nostalgia's fine and all, I wanted to draw lots of new Pokémon. The game's director Junichi Masuda was also present in that interview, and said, From the early stages of development until past the halfway point, we planned on Ruby and Sapphire 
Sapphire featuring nothing but brand new Pokémon. Since Ruby and Sapphire weren't compatible with the earlier Game Boy games, there would have been no way to trade Kanto and Johto Pokémon up to Gen 3. Well, at least not until Fire Red, Leaf Green, and Pokémon Colosseum released a year later. This would have made Gen 3 a pretty hard reboot, even more so than Gen 5 where old Pokémon could still be found in the post-game. But Game Freak ultimately decided to scrap the Hoenn reboot idea due to balancing issues. Basically, there just weren't enough Pokémon of certain elemental types, so they peppered in older Pokémon to quote, fill the gaps. But because the change was made fairly late in development, the game's origins as a reboot still ended up leaving some pretty significant impacts on Ruby and Sapphire's final builds. For one thing, it explains why there's so many new Pokémon in Gen 3, and also why older Pokémon make up such a small percentage of the Hoenn decks. And according to Sugimori and Masuda, it's also why you see nothing but brand new Pokémon until after you've made it past the third town because originally, it was all supposed to be a Pokémon reboot. The scrapped reboot idea is also the reason some of the new Pokémon exist in the first place. As Sugimori explains it, When we decided to have only new Pokémon in these games, it became necessary to make Pokémon that fill the same role as Pidgey, and make a weak Caterpillar Pokémon like Caterpie. For some people, Ruby and Sapphire will be their first Pokémon game, and showing them a Caterpillar turning into a Cocoon, then a Butterfly, is the easiest way to introduce the concept of evolution, so we intend made Wurmple to be like Caterpie, but a little different. In other words, Pokémon like Wurmple and Taillow would have never existed if Gen 3 hadn't spent a chunk of its development as a reboot. Other Pokémon came into existence by working backwards from their names. Game Freak came up with the names Zigzagoon and Slackoff, and thought they were so hilarious they just had to design Pokémon around them. Their names are essentially the same in both Japanese and English, by the way, with Zigzagoon coming from Zigzag Raccoon, and Slackoff derived from Slackoff and Sloth. Then, the design team gave them families based on themes. Sugimori said, Slackoff goes from a sloth to being motivated, then deciding it wasn't worth it after all. Then the raccoon goes from being a zigzag to a straight line, which is how they got Linoon. Fifteen years later, Sword and Shield's art director James Turner continued that theme with an obstacle-based Pokémon. James posted all this art on Twitter just in case some fans didn't catch the wordplay. Just as their initial idea to exclude old Pokémon was a reaction to fans' criticism of Gold and Silver being too been-there-done-that, the actual designs of Hoenn's Pokémon were very much a response to criticism of Gen 2 as well. According to Sugimori, Gold and Silver had a lot of kiddie designs, and some fans were starting to say Pokémon had become too babyish. So one theme for Ruby and Sapphire was returning to the coolness of the monsters. We added more and more cool, tough-looking, and monstrous Pokémon, which is exemplified by Groudon. Sugimori also says his team broke free of limitations hoisted upon them by the anime and merchandising sides of the business. When they made Gen 2's Pokémon, they kept the design simple so they'd be easier to animate in the cartoon. And also also cheaper to make toys out of. But for Gen 3, Sugimori said, quote, screw it. As an example, he points to the complex lines covering Groudon, and explains that his new attitude definitely resulted in Groudon and lots more Pokémon looking cooler than if he was still restrained by the anime and merchandise. But for Gen 3, there was another restriction on the design team that most fans probably would never have expected. Here's how Sugimori explained it. A lot of the Pokémon had a troubled development. Like at one point I said, the tail on that Pokémon was annoying me, so I got rid of it. Then someone else shot back, what? But I already programmed in some tail moves. So we had some constraints where we couldn't get rid of a Pokémon's tail, and as a result we had to change their shape or find some other workaround. 
He goes on to say the same thing happened with Pokémon's horns, where he wanted to get rid of them later in development, but couldn't because other developers already gave them horn moves. We were curious who he might have been talking about, so here's all the Pokémon in Gen 3 who learn tail moves by leveling up. We think the most likely culprits are Laron and Agron. They're pretty easy to imagine without their tails, and they can both learn the attack Iron Tail. Interestingly, their pre-evolution Aron can also learn Iron Tail, even though it doesn't have a tail. As for the Pokémon who weren't supposed to have horns, Ralts, Curlia, and Shuppet fit the bill visually, but none of them have horn moves, so they couldn't be the one Sugimori was talking about. In fact, not a single Pokémon added in Gen 3 can learn Horn Attack, Horn Drill, or Mega Horn, and the ones who can learn Peck all have beaks. So honestly, we're a bit puzzled which Pokémon might have had their horns on the chopping block, so let us know in the comments if you've got a hunch. Speaking of unfinished Pokémon designs, Sugimori also says they sent early builds of Ruby and Sapphire to Nintendo for testing purposes. This included unfinished designs for lots of Pokémon. There's been quite a few leaks of Pokémon beta sprites in recent years, including a text-only Pokédex that described an early version of Rayquaza as the White Dragon Pokémon. But so far, there hasn't been a leak of the actual beta sprites. It seems there's at least two sets of beta sprites, the batch sent to Nintendo for testing, and a later batch used in a Japanese demo. About four months before Ruby and Sapphire released in Japan, Nintendo toured an event called Pokémon Festa around a few Japanese cities. Several screenshots were published showing slightly different designs for Pokémon like Sharpedo. But to this day, what else could be hiding inside those Festa demos remains a mystery. Maybe someday these two beta sprite sets will leak and we'll finally get a chance to see White Rayquaza, the Grass-type Sprinklermon, and countless more scrapped monster designs. Now let's talk about why the games are called Ruby and Sapphire. According to Masuda and Sugimori, part of the reboot concept was a desire to return to the series' roots, so they were looking for titles that could be represented by the colors red and blue to match the Gen 1 games. But beyond that simple concept, concept, the details got pretty complicated because Game Freak staff couldn't agree on the exact titles, and some of the titles they could agree on were already trademarked by other companies. As a result, they didn't come up with the names Ruby and Sapphire until four months before the game's release date. The reason they picked those titles specifically was because the previous game was Crystal, and they wanted to continue the theme of crystals by using gemstones. By the way, if you've ever wondered why Crystal was named after a mineral instead of a color, Game Freak explains why in this Japanese Japanese magazine. Masuda says, Crystal's title came from the crystals used in electronic transmissions, so we picked a title that fit with the game's contents, with Sugimori adding, especially since Crystal was meant for the mobile system GB. They're talking about the internet features of Japanese Crystal, where you could hook up to a cell phone and battle and trade online, get news updates, and access a special event to catch Celebi. Back to Gen 3, though. So there's a type of crystal called corundum. Red corundum are called rubies, and every other color are called sapphires. Blue sapphires are the most valuable, and Game Freak thought the dual nature of corundum crystals seemed pretty clever, and also gave them the red and blue colors they were looking for, so they finally came to an agreement. But then the Pokémon company actually objected, saying they didn't want more games named after crystals, but it was already super late in development, and ultimately they had little choice but to give it their blessing. As for the eventual third edition, Green Corundum do exist, but they don't have a special name. They're still just sapphires. So Game Freak picked another kind of crystal called an emerald. It's not a corundum, but it brought them back to their roots with Gen 1's colors of red, blue, and green which was their initial goal from back when Gen 3 was planned as a reboot. Speaking of Gen 1, when the interviewer asked Masuda where Hoenn's located in relation to Kanto and Johto, he basically said they aren't connected. 
quote, I think it's more fun to think of them as separate worlds. When we designed Hoenn, we also made a rocket launch pad, and we had ideas like maybe that's where Team Rocket came from. But we decided it was better not to spell things out concretely, especially as far as the media is concerned. In other words, even if that's how they thought of it in development, they didn't want to make it canon, probably so they had the freedom to change their minds at some point in the future. As Ruby and Sapphire's development was nearing completion, Masuda's wife went into labor with their first child. He rushed her to the hospital, but the games were in such a critical final stage of development, he kept getting messages on his phone asking to sign off on last-minute revisions. She was born in September, which as Masuda notes on his blog, makes Sapphire her birthstone. Even as he held her for the first time, he could still hear emails arriving in his phone's inbox. Masuda named his daughter Kiri, and to commemorate her birth, secretly added her into the game. She's a young girl in Sutopolis City who gives away free berries, and unlike most NPCs, her name was left unchanged in the English localization. If you talk to her, she'll say her parents named her Kiri so she'd grow healthy and warm-hearted and also says she was born in autumn, just like the real Kiri. But there was more to Gen 3 than just Ruby, Sapphire, and Emerald. Pokémon's third generation featured over a dozen spin-off games, but we just want to focus on the big one, the series' first home console RPG, Pokémon Colosseum. Colosseum wasn't made by Game Freak, or even Pokémon fans at all. It was mostly made by a small team of top talent that Nintendo poached away from Sony. At the same time Game Freak was wrapping up development on Ruby and Sapphire, Nintendo spent about a million dollars opening a new studio called Genius Sonority. The man they put in charge was Manabu Yamana, who up to that point was best known for directing Dragon Quest games, some of the most popular RPGs on PlayStation. Many of Colosseum's other core developers came over from Dragon Quest as well. In an interview on Nintendo's Japanese website, Colosseum's lead programmer said, I hadn't played any GBA or GCN Pokémon games before we started. There actually wasn't a true Pokémon expert in the entire studio. But that didn't change our deadlines, haha. <laughs> The Pokémon Company approached this brand new team of non-Pokémon fans and asked them to make the series' first 3D RPG. Thinking about what kind of game they wanted to make, they thought, well, most of the kids who played the original Pokémon games were about 11 years old. Gen 1 was a coming-of-age story, and these kids have been coming-of-age in the real world, too. So let's make Colosseum's protagonist the same age as the fans who've been along for the ride since the very beginning. Six years have gone by, and the fans are 17 now, so let's make the protagonist 17 as well. In that same Japanese interview, the game's concept lead, Akihiko Miura, said, I wanted to produce a game that was different and also targeted a slightly older audience than previous Pokémon games. Therefore, the main characters are about 17 years old, and they wear a lot of dark-colored clothing. We wanted to make the hero into a kind of dark hero, someone that the gangs are actually afraid of. But as you go through the game, you'll learn that he's really not a bad person, even though he steals other trainers' Pokémon. Genius Sonority wanted a more mature setting to go along with their older protagonist, something totally different from every other Pokémon game. All the mainline games were set in lush environments based on Japan, so they decided on a dry, urban world in a desolate desert, so basically the opposite of what had come before. They created the Ore region and based it on Arizona, which made it the first Pokémon region based on the United States. According to composer Tsukasa Tawada, we actually tried to make a lot of the game resemble Phoenix, Arizona in a loose way.
There's a city in Ore called Fenac, which was founded when the first mayor of the town drew water into the city. Fenac's origin story actually draws from the real-life lore of Arizona's capital city, Phoenix, which was founded when a guy named Jack Swilling had canals built to bring in water. The new canals followed an ancient canal system built by the Hohokam people, and the communities that sprung up were built on top of the Hohokam's ancient ruins. The city was born from the ashes of a former civilization, so they named it Phoenix. By the way, we know some fans pronounce it or, but the only audible reference for the region's pronunciation is a TV commercial where they pronounce it Ore, so we're gonna follow their lead. Darkness has fallen over the land of Ore. Back to the game, though, you can even see a small piece of Arizona in the game's cutscenes. When Wes drives his motorcycle from one town to another, you can spot a rock form in the distance, but only for a brief moment. This appears to be an homage to the Mittens, two famous rock forms in Arizona. To us, it looks more like the West Mitten Butte, but it could also be the Eastern Butte seen from the opposite side. You can see the Mitten on Ore's horizon in several more cutscenes, but it's always so quick. Blink and you'll miss it. In issue 85 of the German magazine Endzone, the game's director identifies one man as the visionary behind the Ore region, Shinichi Hiromoto. At the time, he was most famous for illustrating the Star Wars Return of the Jedi manga, and he'd later say that as a non-Pokemon fan, the only reason he was willing to join the Colosseum project was so he could introduce that grittier element into the world of Pokemon. A stylistic mismatch, cute Pokemon in a decaying world. The very existence of Shadow Pokemon was his idea as well, along with how they looked. Very little concept art for Pokemon Colosseum was ever made public. In fact, there's only three pieces, and they can only be found in a limited edition strategy guide. That guide came bundled with an art book that's mostly just 3D renders, but also includes that rare concept art. We tried to find a copy for sale, but they're pretty hard to come by nowadays. So a big thanks to one of our viewers, Davo Gato, who scanned his copy for us. The first piece is Pyrite Town's initial concept, where the town's Colosseum was originally a raised planetary globe. And there's the Arizona Mitten right there, present from the very beginning. The next one appears to have been made later, showing a much more detailed version of Pyrite Town. In addition to the more mature plot and setting, Colosseum also catered to an older audience by being a lot more difficult than the mainline games. One detail that made Pyrite especially difficult was that it didn't have a Pokémon Center, but this concept art reveals it was originally designed to have one. Also, Pyrite's final build has a bridge that lets you cross the chasm, but it's missing from the concept art, with arrows indicating the only path to the Colosseum was through the long cave system packed with gang members. Otherwise, the concept art matches pretty closely with how Pyrite appeared in the final game. The only other piece of concept art is Myra B, one of the main villains, and still the only character in the entire series whose trainer class is Wanderer. Colosseum has one of the series' best soundtracks, which Tsukasa Tawada mostly wrote in just 10 days. Now, almost 20 years later, we recently got in touch with Tawada and asked about the time he spent in Ore. He said, Not all the songs are inspired by Arizona, but some are, especially the harmonica solo music, which was clearly inspired by the dry air feeling, like a sandstorm in Phoenix, Arizona. Actually, I made some music which didn't get used in Colosseum or XD Gale of Darkness, but I'm not allowed to share it with you now. 
Hopefully someday we'll get a chance to hear it. Although there's actually one piece of Colosseum music that did get released but only in Japan. That's what you're hearing now. In fact, there's an entire virtual reality mode that fans in the West never got to experience, which unlocked a few Japan-exclusive Shadow Pokémon. Those were the days when Nintendo was cross-promoting their hardware by encouraging fans to connect GameCubes with GBAs, and also connect their GBAs to scan e-reader cards. The Japanese e-reader cards unlock the VR mode and three difficulty settings. If you beat all 23 trainers on easy, you unlock one more who's got a Shadow Togepi you can catch. Beat them all on normal and you'll get a chance to catch Shadow Mareep. In hard mode, all the trainers are about as strong as the game's final boss, but even more difficult because there's 24 of them. If you can make it all the way to the end, Shadow Scizor's your final prize. There was also a Japanese bonus disc that gave you a Celebi, and you could transfer it over to your Gen 3 games as well. Pretty much all this extra content is still on the disc in American versions of Pokémon Colosseum, and Nintendo already went through the trouble of localizing most of it into English. Unfortunately, all that content is artificially blocked off so you can't access it in-game. Those e-reader cards were never released internationally, but they could have just as easily made the Japanese VR mode accessible in the base game for free. Adding it all back in would be a great bonus for a modern-day re-release, like say on Nintendo Switch, where they could also make it widescreen and bump the resolution up to HD, a big upgrade from the GameCube's aging 480p. Colosseum got a sequel in 2005, Gale of Darkness, but the Ore series has been dormant ever since. No re-releases and no sequels. In 2016, Junichi Masuda was interviewed by the Spanish edition of Nintendo Official Magazine, who asked, Here's a question that many fans who've been around since the beginning of the series have been wondering. Is there a possibility that we'll see, one day, a game in the style of Pokémon Stadium or Pokémon Coliseum? Masuda replied with just one word, No. And then he laughed. It seems Game Freak and the Pokémon Company aren't too interested in Ore nowadays, but there is still one man keeping a candle lit, Colosseum and XD's composer, Tsukasa Tawada. In 2017, he performed a live piano rendition of the Fenac City theme and uploaded it to his YouTube channel. And in 2021, he composed an arrangement of the Relic Forest theme. Even if everyone else has moved on, it's nice to know that at least one member of the team still has a place in his heart for the Ore region. In this episode, we'll be talking about an add-on to the Pokémon series called the Pokémon Mini. Not to be confused with the Pocket Pikachu, you may be wondering just what this thing is, and we wouldn't blame you for that, so allow us to give you a little rundown. The Pokémon Mini was a console designed and manufactured by Nintendo, specifically made for Pokémon-centric minigames. The system was unveiled in September 2001 at a Nintendo event called the Nintendo Show. Held at Westminster Hall in merry old London, England, it was advertised as a major Pokémon announcement. The Mini was released in North America in November of 2001, with a Japanese launch nearly a month later, and later still in Europe, being released in March of the following year. It's possible that Australia may have been the first market the Mini was available in, with classification for the system's launch title cited as October 3rd, 2001, though the release in the region isn't well documented. 
The Pokemon Mini aptly holds the title for the smallest cartridge-based Nintendo system ever made, with it weighing in at a grand total of 70 grams, battery and game cartridge included. The cartridges themselves are roughly the size of a postage stamp. Even with its small stature, the console boasted some impressive features, especially for the time. It included an internal real-time clock and timer, being able to keep track of time even when the system was off. It also had an infrared sensor for multiplayer games, with one game in particular able to support up to 10 players at a time. It also came with a built-in rumble feature, as well as a shock detector, which let you control Pokemon on screen by rattling your hand like a, quote, poker fan possessed. The console's battery life also clocked in at a whopping 60-hour lifespan, with the use of a single AAA battery. The Mini came with one game, and was available in three different colors. Whooper Blue, Chikorita Green, and Smoochum Purple, a few of the most popular Pokémon, according to Nintendo UK. The console wasn't as big a success considering it carried the Pokémon name. Marketing was practically non-existent for the system, and it came out the same year as the Game Boy Advance. Despite some of its technical prowess, it couldn't compete with the GBA's capabilities and was seen as more of a toy than a gaming system. The Pokémon Mini could be found stocked in stores for roughly a year factoring in all markets. Only 10 games were developed for the console, and of that total, only Japan received the entire library. Four games made their way to North America, and five were released in Europe. North America saw the likes of Pokémon Pinball Mini, a pinball-style game where Pokémon-like Diglett took the place of a pinball plunger, the self-explanatory Pokémon Puzzle Collection, and Pokémon Zany Cards, a collection of card games featuring characters from the Pokémon anime. Pokémon Party Mini came bundled with the system, and served as a showcase of what the console could do, utilizing all of its features across six minigames. Games that were Japan-exclusive included a platform racer hybrid called Pokémon Race Mini, an adventure game called Togepi's Great Adventure, a sequel to Pokémon Puzzle Mini featuring 80 new puzzles, and a follow-up to Party Mini featuring the Pichu Brothers, characters that made their debut in the anime short Pikachu and Pichu, shown alongside the third Pokémon movie. The last game released for the system was Pokémon Breeder Mini in December 2002, a virtual pet-style game, similar to a Tamagotchi. The Mini was released during the second generation of the Pokémon series, with Gold and Silver having released the year before in North America. With Breeder Mini in particular, the system briefly overlapped into the third generation, as it features the starter Pokémon from Ruby and Sapphire, which released in Japan a month prior. There's evidence showing a couple Mini titles were considered for a wider release, but it's likely these plans were hampered due to the system's low sales. Puzzle Collection Volume 2 had been classified by the ESRB under E for Everyone, and would have gone under the similar title Pokémon Mini Puzzle Collection Volume 2, but it ultimately stayed in Japan. Similarly, Pokémon Tetris, the game which received localization outside of Japan but did not see release in the United States, also received an ESRB classification and would have been titled Pokémon Mini Shock Tetris. While every other game for the Mini was developed by Japanese studios Jupiter or Denyusha, Pokémon Tetris is the one game in the Mini's library to be developed by Nintendo themselves. As an aside, it's also the last game where Jinx is depicted with its original skin coloring. This version of Tetris is regarded as one of the best games released for the Mini, and has a high asking price on the second-hand market. 
the European release is especially elusive, with only a few thousand copies ever being printed. The Pokémon Mini concept would be tackled one more time the following year, showing up on the Nintendo GameCube release of the game Pokémon Channel, where it likely received the most exposure. The game has a built-in emulator for the Mini, and games are obtained through the Shop and Squirtle channel where the player can buy various items. The games available for play are altered or stripped down from their original versions. Half of the games came from Pokémon Party Mini, and it's likely the remaining three from the collection weren't ported over due to the unique nature of how they controlled and played on the original hardware. Pokémon Channel also featured an all-new game exclusive to the title called Snorlax's Lunchtime, where the player helps a Snorlax decide what's edible and what isn't. If Snorlax tries to chow down on a Pichu, the game ends. While the Mini didn't leave much of an impression, it did find another lease of life in a different realm of the gaming scene. With the advent of the console receiving an emulator on the GameCube, it allowed people to understand the hardware better, eventually leading to a homebrew scene among hackers. A group of coders under the name Team Pokemi went under the hood and developed a flashcard demo called Shizzle in 2004. This demo was first shown off at German demo scene Breakpoint in 2005 and excited the community, showcasing 3D effects and many other features previously thought impossible on the Mini. They've since made the tools available for others to create their own games, and a number of titles are available for the system, with a few more in development at the time of this video. All games are featured on Team Pokemi's website, pokemonmini.net. The community has also taken the time to preserve the original hardware with scans of some of the original game's instruction manuals, as well as enhance the console itself, with customizable colors and even a mod to introduce a built-in backlight. Over the years, the team has also taken the five Pokémon games released only in Japan and given them full English translations, with the final game being translated in May 2019. All games are available via flashcard or emulation, including the GameCube-exclusive Snorlax's Lunchtime. The team also covered news of a Pokémon Mini prototype that was up for sale on eBay in 2016. The seller had said the system wasn't working anymore, and it came with a cartridge reading Sample 01011. It's not known what this cartridge might have held, be it an early prototype of a final game, an unreleased game, or possibly something else entirely, as the person who bought the system has remained anonymous ever since. Did you know? The Johto region was heavily inspired by the Kansai region of Japan, with Ecruteak City, the region's cultural center, being based on Kyoto. Kyoto is famous for its traditional Japanese architecture and sites of historical and religious significance. Among these sites are the two Buddhist temples that lie to the northeast and northwest of the city. To the east lies Ginkakuchi, or the Temple of the Silver Pavilion, known for the statue of a silver bird that sits atop its roof. To the west lies Kinkakuchi, or the Temple of the Golden Pavilion, which has a statue of a bronze phoenix on top. Kinkakuchi was actually burned down by a novice monk in 1950, but was soon repaired in 1955. If you've played Pokémon Gold, Silver, or Crystal, this should sound familiar to you. 
The two towers of Ekritik City were based on these two real-life Buddhist temples, and they're famous for the legendary birds that were said to roost on top of them. Ho'o perched atop the bell tower to the east, and Lugia perched atop the brass tower to the west. However, Lugia fled to the Whirl Islands when the brass tower burned down under mysterious circumstances, which is a clear reference to Kin Kakuchi. Something worth noting is the fact that Ho'o and Lugia seem to have swapped places from their real-life counterparts. Ho'o is associated with the bell tower to the east, while the bronze phoenix sits atop the western temple. Lugia was associated with the brass tower to the west, while the silver bird is located to the east. In a previous episode, we mentioned that the legendary Pokémon Groudon, Kyogre, and Rayquaza were based on the behemoth, Leviathan, and Ziz of Jewish mythology. These were said to be gargantuan monsters that dominated the land, sea, and sky respectively. There are differing accounts of the creatures' eventual fates. Some stories say that God will slay the creatures and serve them at the Messianic Banquet, a banquet shared between God and the righteous. Other accounts state that the Behemoth and Leviathan will slay one another before they are served at the banquet. This latter account seems to be the inspiration for the battle that takes place between Groudon and Kyogre in Pokémon Emerald. Additionally, Ziz is said to be the messenger of God. This is perhaps reflected in the game's depiction of Rayquaza as being the only thing that can quell Groudon and Kyogre's wrath. If that weren't enough, Generation 3 also included Regirock, Regice, and Registeel, Pokémon that are based on the Jewish myth of the Golem. The Golem was a crude image of a man constructed from clay and brought to life. In the Middle Ages, it was commonly believed that the Golem could be brought to life and controlled by using any one of God's names. God's name was to be written on a piece of paper and either inserted into the mouth of the Golem or placed on the Golem's forehead. This legend evidently had an impact on the design of the Pokémon as well, as each of the legendary Golems has writing on their heads that bears a resemblance to Braille. The Pokémon Arceus is said to be the creator of the Pokémon world, having created Dialga, Palkia, and Giratina, three Pokémon that control time, space, and antimatter respectively. Arceus also created the late guardians of Sinnoh, Yuxi, Mesprit, and Azelf that brought knowledge, emotion, and willpower into the world. Appropriately, Arceus appears to be based on various creation myths from world mythology. Most prominently, it appears to be loosely based on the creation myth from Shinto mythology, which states that before heaven and earth were divided, they were a chaotic formlessness described as a cosmic egg. Eventually, the pure part of this egg was drawn out to become heaven, and the impure part became earth. Afterwards, divine beings were created, starting with the being Kunitoko Tachinomikoto. This being created two more deities known as Izanagi no Mikoto and Izanami no Mikoto. These two beings, using the Spear of Heaven, created the mythical island known as Onogorojima and erected a great pillar in the middle of this island. The Shinto creation myth and Sinnoh's creation myth share many similarities. Arceus's Pokedex entry in Pokémon Platinum reads, It is said to have emerged from an egg in a place where there was nothing, then shaped the world. Arceus's creation of Dialga and Palkia to rule over time and space is similar to the creation of Izanagi and Izanami. Finally, Dialga, Palkia, Giratina, and through hacking, even Arceus itself, are all encountered at the top of Mount Coronet in an area called the Spear Pillar. The Spear Pillar sits at the center of Sinnoh and was said to be the point of Sinnoh's creation. Onogorojima was created by a spear and a great pillar was a erected at its center, hence Spear Pillar. Arceus also takes some inspiration from Buddhist mythology. Its Pokémon Diamond Pokédex entry states, It is described in mythology as the Pokémon that shaped the universe with its 1,000 arms. The image of a deity with 1,000 arms is evocative of Avalokiteshvara, the personification of perfect compassion in Buddhism. Avalokiteshvara aspires to help all sentient beings be free of samsara, the endless cycle of reincarnation. Another possible connection between Arceus and Buddhism is the wheel on its back, which is reminiscent of the Dharma Chakra, the wheel of the Dharma, which represents the path to Nirvana.
Two of the starter Pokémon from Generation 4 are also based on world mythology. Torterra is based on the myth of the World Turtle that can be found in many mythologies around the world. For example, Chinese mythology states that the creator goddess Nu Gua used the legs of a giant tortoise to prop up the sky. Certain Native American mythologies tell of a giant turtle that supports the entire Earth upon its back. Torterra's Heart Gold and Soul Silver Pokédex entry reads, Ancient people imagined that beneath the ground a gigantic Torterra dwelled, explicitly referenced its real-world inspiration. Infernape may be based on Hanuman, a Hindu god that appeared in the Hindu epic poem Ramayana. Hanuman was a monkey that was granted immunity to burning by the deity of fire, Agni. He famously caused massive destruction to the mythical city of Lanka when he was held captive and his tail lit on fire. As the fire could not harm him, he escaped, and he used his tail to burn down large parts of the city. While the legendary Pokémon Keltia was based on D'Artagnan from the Three Musketeers, it may have also been inspired by Scottish mythology. The Kelpie was a water spirit that often took the form of a beautiful horse in order to lure people into a watery grave. Its methods of doing so differ between accounts, but would generally lure men into riding on its back before galloping across the waves. Keldeo is also able to run across water. Its Pokédex entry in Pokémon White states that it crosses the world running over the surfaces of oceans and rivers. Did you also know that there's over 30 Mario video games that America never got, or that there's a cancelled Zelda game for the DS that no one had ever heard of until a few weeks ago? For more on those, click or tap one of the videos on screen, and thanks for watching.